Welcome back to the Quantified Body. It's been a little while and I've really missed the show. Hopefully you've missed it too. And that's why you're listening right now. And we're going to be back and uh, putting more episodes out once a month as a minimum is my goal because I've really missed the show. I have been extremely busy with my other project, but uh, when I did this episode, I just realized how much I really do miss this show and I'm really excited about getting back with it. Now, this particular episode, today's episode, has been in the making for four years because it's four years since Microbiome Labs have started to be made available. And since then, I and today's guest have run many, many, many of these labs from the different companies for different parts of our bodies in the context of different experiments and so on. And all with the goal of seeing where we could extract some actionable information from them. And that is the subject of today's episode. We're going to attempt to answer the question, how actionable are microbiome lab results today and in the future? So we'll also discuss and dive into the results from our own labs and give examples and samples of them and also the experiments we've done on the biome and what happened, if anything. And we'll look at the various technologies and discuss them and discuss their pros and cons because there are quite a few different technologies available today and being used. If you are new to all of this, then there are some previous episodes of the show that we have covered the microbiome previously. The first one was episode nine with Jessica Richman from one of the first microbiome labs, Ubiome. That's a good place to start. And then episode 37 was with Dr. Robin Knight, who is quite prolific in terms of research in the microbiome area. He also works on the American Gut Project, which was one of the first ones. And that was a discussion of the health impacts of the biome, which you are probably aware from the news, the press, and so on. That There's a lot of research coming out that says that the microbiome is linked to many aspects of our health, wellness, and disease today. Today's guest is citizen scientist Richard Sprague. He has previously in a career been a software developer at Apple and other tech companies, and then kind of moved to citizen science, where he worked at Ubiome for a whole year. And during that time, interestingly, he ran over 600 microbiome tests. So in the past four years, he's done over 600 microbiome tests and tried various experiments and really dug into that data and looked at it from many perspectives. So he was a great guest to have on to discuss this topic because he's really covered it in depth and experimented and got his hands dirty with it. Now today he has a day job in a new startup called AirDoc, where the startup has access to millions and millions of health records in China, where they are now applying artificial intelligence, deep learning models to that data in order to bring value to hospitals and clients in China and elsewhere in the world. As always for this episode, we have the show notes on the blog, thequantifiedbody.net. In the show notes, you'll find them pretty valuable, especially for today, in fact, because many of the charts, visuals, the sample reports, and things like that that we discuss are much more digestible in visual format. So I'll make sure they're all there for you, including links to everything mentioned in the show, including the studies, and easy to take away and apply summaries of the biomarkers we discuss, the tracking, the tools, and the tactics that we covered. If you want all of that information in your email inbox every time a show comes out, just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, 
put your email in there and from then and so forth, you shall have it in your email inbox anytime a episode comes out, which I promise will be at least once a month going forward. Now, let's dive into this deep dive of the microbiome labs. What we can do with them today and what we expect we'll be able to do with them in the future. The quantified body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Richard, thanks so much for joining the show. Great to have you here. My pleasure. I'm a big fan of your podcast and uh, actually a little bit humbled that you've asked me to come here and talk today. Well, you shouldn't really be humbled because you're a real data geek when it comes to some of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> so we've known each other for a long time because of that. can't remember how we connected. Do you remember how we first connected? I'm not sure either. It's probably some quantified self thing, but I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning. Uh, it wasn't in person anyway. It was online. I think you must have posted. You know what? I think you posted some new biome analysis, one of the first blog posts trying to analyze it or something. And I found you on Twitter. It might be something oh, yeah, like that. It could be. Okay, great. So we're going to talk about the microbiome because Richard, as I just mentioned in the intro, has uh, been looking into this a lot. And really the first thing is just to get you guys up to speed on all of this because it's like starting to become quite a complex question. Why is the microbiome interesting? You know, we hear a lot about this in podcasts and health podcasts all the time. You know, I think it's quite quite a lot more complex than we generally hear. So, Richard, what do you think? What's going on with all of this? Why is it important and why are the labs important right now to try and quantify it? You've had several podcast interviews with people who've been you know, working on the microbiome science. But um, to me, the way I would summarize it is that unlike genomics and genetics and your human DNA, I find that which I find, you know, it's very fascinating, but there's not a whole lot you can do to change it. Despite the fact that there are there's a lot of genes that are involved, there's not a whole lot you can do if you find out that you've got the gene for this or that. Whereas with the microbiome, you've got way more genes and you can change them. And I think those two things are part of the reason that I'm very excited about the microbiome. The other thing is that partly because of that, scientists are finding out all kinds of new relationships and associations between the microbiome and just about any human condition you can imagine. Everything from allergies and obesity to Alzheimer's disease to mental health issues like depression or schizophrenia. There's a relationship with the microbiome there. We don't understand what they are, but in the last couple of years, some really awesome new technology has come online that makes it possible not just to be able to go and see what the microbiome is in an individual person, but now it's coming to the point where it's at consumer level pricing so that you and I can go and figure that out as well and not just wait for some scientists to go and figure it out. Right. It's actually interesting because basically since 2014, there's been quite a few different labs coming out. And these are really some of the first, I mean, genetics was the first with 23andMe and players like that, but it's one of the first areas yeah. where it's consumer-driven testing rather than coming from the medical world and coming from physicians where basically, yeah. you know, they control all that stuff. But really, Ubiome, which is one of the first kind of commercial players, came out and said, like, this is going to be a consumer-driven model at first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I think that's the other reason there's a lot of chat about it as well, because it's more accessible to the general population. Yeah, that's right. And uh, in particular, I think, you know, the 16S, I call it the hack, made it possible to do something that people weren't expecting to happen, you know, technologically so quickly. 
because if you think about how long and how much money it took to sequence the first human genome back in 2000, you know, that was billions of dollars and involved, you know, the cooperation of hundreds, maybe thousands of scientists around the world. Well, now we're talking about at least 10 times, maybe 100 times more genes in a single human being from microbes. And they're from thousands, maybe tens of thousands of different species. Well, how in the world would you ever sequence all of those genes? It just seems like an impossible problem. But somebody discovered this trick several years ago that lets you just look at one particular, um, it's 200 base pairs on one particular gene, and you can get a rough idea of what's going on. And that just revolutionized things because it made it possible now for people to get a hint of what all the those microbes are doing. And that just revolutionized the field. And what's cool is, like you say, since about 2014, it's been possible for the rest of us to go and, and access that same kind of technology for under basically under $100. And that's just opened up all kinds of new, interesting discoveries. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get into why the 16S works and how it works in a bit. I mean, let's take a step back because obviously there's there's quite a few different technologies out there. When you go to see physicians, when you're using these technologies, when you're trying to understand your gut and what's going on, there's, there's a fair amount of options and there's different options that are being used. So Richard, could you just give us a quick overview of what kind of technologies are being used currently? The first one is culturing, and that's been around for hundreds of, you know, arguably thousands of years because you essentially, if you know that there's a microbe involved, and if you know which one you want, it's well understood what kind of things they eat. And so you just take a little bit of a sample and you put it in a petri dish and you wait to see what happens. And, you know, scientists know how to culture a lot of the microbes that are important, in particular the pathogens. And that's kind of the classic way to do it. In fact, even today, it's still the gold standard. If you have some kind of a medical issue where a doctor wants to confirm for certain that you have such and such pathogen, everybody will trust the culturing results. So that's kind of the first thing. The problem with culturing is that it only works on certain organisms and they have to be alive. It takes a while to figure it might take several days, might take weeks in, in the case of some microbes. So the next step was the development of PCR, which is if you know which microbe you're looking for, you can put it into a special machine, polymerase chain reaction, which is you know well-understood technology that's been around since the early 90s, and they will confirm or deny whether a particular sequence of DNA base pairs are in there or not, which is another way of saying, you know, a particular microbe. And that works very quickly. That's you know a few hours in some cases, and you can find out for certain whether a particular microbe is there. So the big advantage there is speed. And also, I mean, accuracy, because you can really pinpoint something. That's right. And yeah, that's if right, it yeah. is, if it does show up in the test, you can be sure it's there. Whereas yeah, even with true. the cultures, I think one of the issues is just contamination, because you've got these petri yeah. dishes growing stuff. Who knows? Sometimes I, I've done some cultures in the past for different things, and I've been very suspect about the actual results that came out in the end. I was like, I think, you know. Yeah, you have that contamination problem with everything. Yeah. The bigger issue with culturing, I think, and contamination is that sort of by definition, you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen. <laughs> and uh, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And for example, if the pathogen of interest, if it somehow died on the way to the Petri dish for no good reason, you're not going to find it. And vice versa, if the lab technician somehow exposed something or other to this or that on the way to the Petri dish, then you're going to see something you weren't expecting. Yep. yep. So the next step up is we were talking about 16S sequencing. It's called 16S because there's a, a line on the centrifuge. When you take the sample and you spin it around enough, um, there's a line that's called the 16S line, which is if you skim off the goop that you find there, you will get one particular gene called the, I guess, the ribosomal rRNA gene that is the part of a genome 
that's responsible for building the ribosome, which is an essential part of the way that all cells work. Well, in bacteria, it turns out that all bacteria use a very similar gene. We call it the 16S of the ribosomal gene. And because bacteria are all going to have that same one, in evolutionary terms, it's called conserved throughout evolution, that it becomes possible to be able to um, tell the differences between bacteria based on slight variations in that gene. The gene itself is, um, I think it's a couple thousand base pairs. Yeah. But it's one particular part of that gene called the V4 subunit that's only, a, I think it's 200 base pairs. And so if you just sequence those 200 base pairs, you've got a pretty good idea of which microbe it is because all the different bacteria that have ever been found on Earth will have that 16S gene, right. and they will differ just slightly. And if you've got a reference database to be able to see, to see which one is which, and especially if you know that this came from a human gut, right there, you've suddenly been able to eliminate having to do gazillions of sequences. And because you know sequencing something for only 200 base pairs is pretty cheap, you're able to get the whole cost down to less than $100. Yeah, so they call this hypervariable because, I mean, yeah. the interesting thing about this is that that region just varies greatly. So that's why you're able to identify these different genus, at least sometimes species, if it happens to be a species that has more, more variation on that. But that's really the key to it. It just varies, varies so much that you're able to identify the different things in it. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. It's a really amazing shortcut when you think about it. That right. You're able to go from from you know, literally millions of genes down to exactly which phylum and species it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. And so those were the first tests that came out with the U-Biome, the American Gut, and uh, some others. There's, you know, there's uh, Atlas Biomed now in Russia and, and the UK as well. But I'd say most of the labs are using 16S. Is that the one like you've seen? Because you, you, you've seen some others in the States, some new ones that I hadn't come across. That's right. I mean, there are lots of, it's not that hard for a lab to do 16S sequencing. Yeah. In fact, um, probably most universities do this routinely. Mm. So anybody who's got a, an Illumina gene sequencer can do 16S sequencing. It's not, but you know, the, the basic ideas are, are, are pretty well understood. Also the pipeline, the software pipeline, where you go from the output of the gene sequencer to actually telling you which part of the taxonomy it is. All of that stuff is available in open source software. I mean, just about anybody can go, anybody, right. any reasonable lab can go do it. For me, when I was first getting my UBIM stuff, I was trying to understand it better, and I just accessed the open source stuff, and it was actually, you know, yep. you, you think it's going to be super complicated, you know, I didn't do a degree in, in bioinformatics or anything, but actually, it wasn't that complicated, I managed to look into, and you've been doing a lot of that and posting your results up online as well, that's how you got into it, so yep. it's actually yep. very accessible, which, which is great as well. That's right, and... It's pretty easy to find, uh, if you have questions, it's pretty easy to find bioinformatics experts around who will answer your questions because, like I said, this whole technology and the basics behind it is pretty well understood. Mm. So that's 16S. The next step up is requires a lot more detail and a lot more sequencing. People call it metagenomic sequencing. And essentially what you're doing is you're taking the entire sample, you're, you blow it up, people say you shoot a shotgun at it, and you get all these little parts flying out. And then the computer takes, it's almost like a big jigsaw puzzle, and it reassembles it. And the advantage of metagenomic sequencing is that now you're not just looking at that one 16S rRNA gene, you're looking at all the genes. And uh, so it's a lot more comprehensive. And then you can get species, strain level identification. That's right. The, the one thing I struggled with when I was doing a, a few little projects on this was sometimes 
If you're unlucky and you're trying to identify some certain species or definitely strains or even genesis in some cases, the 16S can't, can't work. It, it's very difficult to get that type of level of granularity of uh, information out of it sometimes. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, that matters. So one of the reasons why something turns into a pathogen, it turns into a pathogen and uh, your body's not able to fight it off because it may be only off one or two base pairs. So uh, there are versions of E. coli that are only a couple of base pairs different than the ones that are highly pathogenic. And that's because the bacteria are able to mutate much faster than a human can. Obviously, it takes us a whole lifetime <laughs> before you pass on a genetic mutation, whereas the bacteria do this all the time. And so unfortunately, most of the pathogens that you'll see out there are just a couple of base pairs different, and you can't tell them apart with 16S. So when you say a couple of base pairs, that's the strain level? Is that the level of strain difference? That could be the, the strain level or the, you know, the species level. That's right. It depends yeah. on where in the, um, where right. in the gene the, the mutation happened. So strain, strain for the guys at home is the absolute like, tiniest. Like it's basically, a, you know, if you think about a human mutation, that's kind of like a, a strain. I think you said that's correct, Richard. Yeah. The, the way I would describe it is that like you take a dog or a wolf are both part of the genus canine. Okay. Right. Uh -huh. um, it would matter a lot to you whether if you found out there was a, right. whether it's a dog or a wolf at your door matters a lot. Right. So yeah. just knowing the genus didn't help you a whole lot. The species will tell you now that it's a dog versus a wolf. The strain would tell you that it's a poodle or a bulldog. Yeah, that's a good example. Now, and there are, there are lots of cases where it might make a big difference, whether it's a Rottweiler or a, <laughs> a, a poodle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah. Uh, so you'll need this kind of metagenomic sequencing to be able to tell that level of difference. And Absolutely. unfortunately, a lot of times it matters. Yeah. So I had on a PCR test just in November, oh, yeah. uh, Vibrio uh, cholera, in other words, cholera turned up in my test. And I was looking at it like this can't be like, a, you know, you start looking into it and you're like, Wow. And I had had like diarrhea stool problems for about a week, which were very unusual liquid diarrhea. And, you know, so I looked into this as like, I can't have had cholera. And when you look into it, there's only two specific strains of that with small modifications, which cause the epidemics. The other ones, yeah. they're dangerous. They're not nice. You know, they give you diarrhea for a week or whatever, and it's not nice. But it, it's actually like some very rare strains that come out. And those are the only ones that cause, you know, the really lethal epidemics that we've seen in the past. Could be. And in fact, and this is why it gets really complicated, it could be that the particular strain that you have will outcompete the bad guy. So having it will actually help prevent you from getting cholera. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's the sort of thing that happens. That's why it's really hard to look at the presence or absence of a particular microbe and say in isolation whether this is good or bad. Usually it will turn out that something that's pathogenic will have one other characteristic, which is that it is super hyper competitive. And it will just eat up everything else and take over. And you'll know within days, you know, maybe hours, <laughs> whether it's bad or not. Yeah. So a lot of times if you just see a little bit of this or that in there, that's just like. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is really, really important because I think a lot of the people who are finding species, and I think we've both been guilty of it too, Richard. We find a species in, you know, one of our uh, microbiome tests and we dig into it and we research it. And, and especially with the 16S lab, where it's maybe at a higher level that it's been identified. Yeah. I think it can lead to a lot of work with no kind of outcome there because you're not yeah. as sure of what you're actually dealing with. And the best thing there is probably to turn to escalate it, basically shotgun. If you found something in a 16S, you could escalate it to a shotgun or better PCR for the specific yeah. one that may be a concern. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
The other kind of uh, thing to always keep in mind with all of this sort of testing is that we do have a lot of data. And that's dangerous because now suddenly you're being overflown with, a, you know, it's, you're flooded with a whole bunch of data and it's easy to overreact because <laughs> you'll find all kinds of things. In there. <laughs> and it takes a long time to be able to um, sit back and look at it a little bit more objectively and say, you know what, this is just the nature of the technology. And we're here at the we're at the cutting edge. We're going to find some stuff. You know, don't get too excited. So uh, I'm going back to kind of the list of the different ways that you can measure the microbiome. One of the other areas that's been very exciting, this is kind of where the real cutting edge is now, it's called transcriptomics because, and that's based on the observation that yep. just because a gene or a microbe is there doesn't mean anything in and of itself. What you really care about is whether that gene is producing the proteins that are the building blocks of life. And the way that you tell that is by the RNA that it's producing while it's, um, while it's, it's doing all, its, all of its copying and transcribing these genes. So people call it transcriptomics because you're transcribing this gene into RNA and there are some new tests that are coming along that let you be able to look at that. Now, that has been extremely expensive. Like I said, it's the cutting edge. And you're talking about RNA, which is a very difficult to handle molecule. And it takes special kinds of labs to be able to do that. And what's very exciting is that now that is becoming possible to do at consumer level pricing as well. But that's definitely, I think um, most of us would agree that that's where the future is going to be. Yeah. And then after that, you have proteomics actually looking at yeah. the proteins because basically what we're talking about is the the chain of events in order to create you know the different molecules in your body and it goes yeah. and it goes all the way down the line from genetics transcriptomics proteomics to metabolomics metabolomics yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's all great stuff yeah that's and right the, the the beauty of it is one day we'll probably have all of them and actually <laughs> yeah. understand what's going on in the body yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I should also mention there are lots and lots of different tricks along the way to try to mimic what you get off of metabolomics or uh, transcriptomics without having to do like a full blood panel and that sort of stuff. And one of them is called, um, it's called, we call it functional genomics. For example, you biome, you can get a, this thing called a keg analysis and that's, mm -hmm. that's fairly common. And, uh, that's kind of a way to guess what sorts of metabolites might be produced by this particular um, gene. I don't think it's of super huge value. A lot of people will point to that as being evidence that such and such um, type of uh, metabolite is present in my body. And you'll, you'll hear that you know, now and then. It's just called keg analysis is another way to you know, talk about it. But what I'm excited about is that now I think we're able to move beyond that to looking more directly at what the specific um, thing going on in your body is. With the transcriptome. With the That's transcriptome, right. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you can see that on Ubiome, right? If any, if any of you has a Ubiome test at home, they have the functional part of that is displayed. They still have those That's charts. Right, yeah. I haven't checked them for yep. a while. Yeah, yep. and so that would be your keg analysis you're talking about, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and these things like you know they'll say you know you've got caffeine metabolism and other things going on, or yeah, vitamin D, or you know yeah. this or that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting because you told the story of where that came from and why we should maybe be a little conservative in thinking that that's accurate. Well, it's based on some experimental studies that were done a long time ago in Kyoto. It's actually, that's why it's called KEG. It's Kyoto something or other, EGG, where they essentially took a lot of genetic samples and they looked to see what kind of metabolites were produced. Well, based on those experiments, they were carefully done experiments. People are estimating when you've got a particular set of uh, genes in your sample, what kind of metabolites they might produce as well. And that's probably, that's arguably better than knowing nothing at all, but it's probably not going to be a, I, I wouldn't rely on it to be able to tell exactly how much, you know, caffeine I'm metabolizing or vitamin D, et cetera. 
And you find a lot of this kind of stuff with genomics where uh, somebody's got some kind of tool and it's experimental and they're just trying it out and we'll see how it works. And this is one of those cases. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in it. Yeah. Right. Great. I think another important question like, is why use genomics labs to understand the microbiome versus the other ones, the cultures? They're all genomics, right? The PCR. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the so the biggest advantages of the genomic approaches are that it works on all of the microbes that are in the sample. Remember, with culturing, unfortunately, unless you reproduce the exact environment of your gut, which means you know it's anaerobic, there's no oxygen there, um, it's got all the different microbes all in combination. You know, some of them are producing things that the other ones eat and need, and yeah. you know, there's this whole community of things. Unless you've got that whole thing, you can't necessarily culture what you're looking for. Whereas the genomics approaches, it just says, you know what, we're just going to look at every single gene in the whole thing. As a result, people have found that it's well over 90% of all the genes in your body or of all the microbes in your body cannot be cultured. We find, we find brand new ones all the time. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's, that's what's going on with it. And that's yeah. only been allowed, been enabled by the genomic approach. That's because right. Because as you're explaining, right, it's super complicated. And I got all the interactions between the bacteria and they rely on each other to survive. As soon as you remove them and you're trying yeah. to culture them or something, you remove that whole environment that they've been able to survive and breed in. And they need the metabolites, the things coming from the other bacteria, and they're just not there potentially because you kill them off. Because the way that culturing works is basically you're trying to separate out the things you're trying to grow that so that they show up and they show up in colors and stuff. But by separating out, killing off the other stuff, not letting it grow, you're basically killing the ones that you want to grow anyways in some cases because they need the other bacteria. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And now it turns out that in a lot of interesting cases, like some of the pathogens, maybe that's good enough. But if you're really trying to understand the whole you know, richness of the microbiome, um, you'll have to go to the genomics approaches. Excellent. So now I will say, and I think we should put a big caveat in here, the genomics approaches, it's nice to be able to get a look at all the genes that are there. And when I first started studying this, I thought, wow, this is awesome. Now I'll finally know what's going on in my body. But I discovered that it's actually much more complicated than it looks. As you can imagine, if you've got millions of organisms in a sample and you want to turn that into something, you know, some useful data summary, there are a lot of steps that the lab has to go through. And the steps are everything from the way that you happen to insert the sample into the vial and it goes through the mail and then how the lab tech handles it, all the way up to the bioinformatics pipeline where they're going to process all of these numbers that come out of the sequencer and turn that into whatever taxonomy. There are dozens of steps involved. And in any of those steps, if a lab does it slightly differently than the other lab, you're going to get a different result. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you, because Richard's, of course, he's he's been at UBiome for quite a while, so he's had a closer experience of all of this. It seems like the bioinformatics pipeline, which is basically a series of calculations you're going to make based on a database you you have of references. Yeah. You know, basically saying, and and that comes from research of things saying that. This piece of code means that this uh, species genus exists and, and so on. So you're using a database of references in order and you're pushing it through this pipeline of algorithms, basically, that looks at the database checks and categorizes things. So that's what that bioinformatics uh, pipeline is actually doing. And it turns out yeah. that everyone's creating their own bioinformatics pipeline and they're using different databases, different reference databases. That's right. And then we get... Uh, quite different results, which is the next question that you know I wanted to bring on to is like, why are we getting different results from different labs? Yeah, yeah, and this is uh, this is a little bit. You know, when I when I started digging into this, it was a little bit scary for me because I'd spent a lot of time 
getting to know the different papers and the different labs and the different um, conclusions that people come up. And um, I, I'll actually, you can put it in the show notes, but there's a, a chart that I like to see that was um, from a publication in Science a couple of years ago where somebody actually went through and compared all the different big microbiome categorization projects and looked at just some of the common, common genus, genus levels, microbes that they found in there. And it's a little scary because you look at it and you see that, oh, the Human Microbiome Project says that such and such genus is dominant. And this one big study of like 4,000 individuals in the Netherlands found that, no, that's not the one that's dominant. It's a different one. And these are, we're talking about, you know, hundreds, thousands of individuals. So you'd think that they would all kind of average out, um, but that's right. not the case. And even um, American gut and Ubiome, if you look at their overall pictures, when they look at, you know, Formicutes versus Bacteroidetes or some of the other common ones, you know, the results are just different. And you could say that, well, maybe that's because the type of people who send samples to Ubiome are different than the ones. <laughs> but, you know, you're talking about enough people that that's a little bit harder to swallow. So what really is going on is that when a lab makes just one little change in, for example, how many times they PCR something before they submitted the sequencer, just one little change like that will express different levels of DNA and then poof, you've got a different result. And each of the labs, if they use different, uh, like you were saying, the reference databases, those reference databases could be slightly different. If they find that uh, a particular gene, they look it up in one reference database and it says that, oh, this is bifidobacterium such and such. Well, another lab might have called it something else. And uh, so you just have to be a little careful. The good news is, and this is where kind of the way I look at this, is that if you're going through the same lab, you know, most labs, I give them the benefit of the doubt. They're usually pretty careful. And they, you know, the scientists behind this are usually pretty cautious about how they do protocols so that you could pro you could usually trust when uh, you submit a sample to one lab that it's comparable to the sample the next time you submit it to the same lab. It's just you have to be a little bit careful if you see a paper that says that they found that such and such microbe is associated with such and such condition. Don't just automatically assume that, oh, well, if my ubiome result says I've right. got that microbe, then that yeah. must mean I've got such and such association. You yeah, just, you could look at you know, which lab did they use, you know, yeah. basically. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that there isn't a standardized reference database, but it's it's also the nature of uh, the, the technology in a way it's developing, really, because it's been opened That's up. That's right, yeah. And we have this commercial model, which is actually enabling really the explosion of like data gathering. I don't know how many samples, but basically there weren't there weren't enough samples out there being collected and, and so on to advance science, right? So you have these commercial companies like Ubiome and so on, and they've made it feasible to get a large number of samples. I don't know if you know how many samples Ubiome is now, or if that's disclosable or... I, I don't think they've, uh, um, I think the last announcement of them is it's, you know, it's well over a quarter million. I don't know the exact, wow. I, mean, I don't know the exact number of what they've announced, but it's a lot of samples. Right. So, and then you learn a lot from that massive data. You start to see the correlations and they, all the labs, I think, have questionnaires filled in as well. So that, you know, they can start to see if there's some things that are related to paleo diets, keto diets, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, to antibiotics abuse. Not that many people like to abuse antibiotics in particular, but um, it has been done. So I think that it's really interesting that all this data is being collected. And the nice thing also is that they keep the sequences, correct? Now, this is this is definitely an area you'll know more about than me, but if we wanted to run this through a different bioinformatics pipeline later, could we do that? It would be tricky to do... Are you saying, like, if I if I submitted the same sample to um, Ubiome... No, I'm saying, I'm saying Ubiome has a million samples, for example, right? Just, just an example. 
And they have a particular bioinformatics pipeline today, which says that, for example, I have uh, a species, uh, we'll talk about just like the cholera species, right, that came up in my in my PCR test recently. Um, but, you know, maybe in a five years time, they'll improve their reference database. Yeah, that's right. So, in fact, it could just go back to the shelf and look up and, you know, see your old sample and then run it through something else. And, um, and they might find something new. That's right. Yeah. Right. So if they ever do decide that it's important to change their bioinformatics pipeline, they could you could just, run it again. Yep. Just yep. run it again. And in fact, if you have the FASTQ file, the raw output from the sequencer, it's possible to run it through a different pipeline there as well. And, right. And if in the future somebody comes up with a better reference database, for example, it's possible to just take that same exact FASTQ file and come up with a different answer. Well, exactly. So so they have all these FASTQ files, right, on a server somewhere, I'm guessing, right? Yep. Right. And the, so these are the things you could run through a bioinformatics pipeline and get different answers. So that data is going to be invaluable, incredibly valuable. Yeah, you'll be able to find anyway. new insights from the old data yeah, in right. the future. Mm-hmm. Richard and I were just talking before we started this episode. Uh, some of the stuff may be challenging to get without visuals. Whenever we're mentioning something, you know, you can and it sounds complicated. Well, uh, for probably for a chart in there because we'll realize that <laughs> um, and we'll be like, yeah, that one deserves a visual chart. And so we might go over it like over the concept relatively quickly because we realize we're not going to get there on audio, but uh, try and provide some uh, visual aids in the show notes. Let's talk about the actual labs now. What are all these labs? I mean, we've just kind of bounced around a few of them already, but what's the landscape look like? I mean, it looks like it's kind of exploding in the last few years, right? So I think Ubiome and, and American Gut were around 2014, and since then, there's just quite a few different labs that have come out. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually curious also about you because you've done more of the culturing than I have. Okay. And uh, you know, what kind of labs that you've, you've had experience with on the culturing side? Yeah, so there's a few, basically a lot of uh, functional medicine practitioners and hospitals in general will use the culture approach. So I've done many, many different cultures over time. And eventually this led me to running two different cultures. This is quite a few years after having started the doctor's data and the biohealth lab side by side because they have different strengths and weaknesses. They're both culture-based tests and pretty consistently some things would turn up, not necessarily on both of them. I was working with Chris Cresser's California Institute of Functional Medicine there. And they are very, I like, I like those guys because they're very conservative about tests. Uh, you, you may have come across them as well, Richard, because I know they were oh, yeah. talking to you by them and stuff. And they're very conservative about their tests. You know, they look for the studies, they, they look and they have a very large population of uh, clients now as well. Yeah. And they've been running for many years. So I like the fact that they've been doing that for a while and they have changed their tests over time. And they, I think they may have um, moved on a little bit from these tests, but a couple of years ago when I was doing a lot of this with them, uh, they were running both of those side by side, which is a little bit expensive, but it did tend to give us a pretty clear signal. um, Did you, uh, you submitted the same exact sample to two different labs? Yeah. Each time. Yeah, that was their protocol. Basically, can I ask you in those, those culturing labs, were they, um, did you have to like poop in a box or did you send a swab? We used to these kind of tiny vials for the uh, U-biome, right? Yeah. Where you put this little, tiny, really little vial. I mean, like basically the size of your, the end of your thumb. Right. The culture labs, they're larger, kind of three times a test tube size. They're like a big test so tube. So a couple of table to, a couple of tablespoons. Uh, yeah. And normally, actually, you have four of those for each kit. So there's a lot of spooning, <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> Sp- <yeah. laughs> scooping that goes on for a little while. 
into yeah. these different containers because they're trying to, you know, they've got different assays they're running there and they're trying to preserve and, and do different things in each of those vials so that they can look for different things, parasites and so on. So it was quite a time-consuming process yeah. when you were doing and, that. And I think you, did you have to go to the hospital, the doctor's office to do it? No, you no, you just, it, yeah, yeah, you do these at home. They they send you the kits and you uh, sit on the floor scooping. That's what I, you know, I would lock myself <laughs> in there for half yeah. an hour and scoop yeah. away. And did the tests agree with each other? You said you submitted the same, you know, from the same sample. Sometimes, sometimes they didn't. I, the, the reason they were using those uh, in particular is because they felt they had different strengths as well. Last I heard, like some some people feel biohealth was a little bit more um, useful and picked up more stuff. And again, it comes back to our discussion of sensitivity, wherever it's picking up stuff. And that is the concern with a lot of physicians that it's not picking up stuff. It's not able and doesn't do it reliably. So, you know, I actually experienced this because I did many of these over time. We were doing them like every every couple of months or so to see if the treatments we were doing against uh, parasites like Blastocyst uh, ominous I had for a while, and it's quite a common thing, but it can be a bit of an annoyance in the gut. And, you know, we would do a, a protocol to get rid of it. We would retest, it'd be gone. And, um, and we wait, you have to wait after your treatment, obviously, in order to uh, let things settle down and see if they grow back. And, and it would be gone for maybe two tests, and then it would come back again. It would just pop up on one of the tests. Hmm. So there's a bit of inconsistency, and it's a little bit worrying. And, so that, and for that reason, you end up doing a lot of these, and they can be expensive. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I don't know too much about doctor's data or biohealth. I you know, talked to um, functional medicine practitioners who use GI effects. Yep. And that seems to be, at least in the, you know, the Seattle area, which is where I am, and there are a lot of naturopaths, that seems to be kind of the one that most people use. People say, you know, the functional medicine people that I talk to are pretty positive about it. And they say that it actually is, you know, produces very actionable results for treatment. Yeah. It seems to be one to beat. Right. That, that was actually the first one I ever did. You know, I think it was back in 2011 or something. It was Metametrics previously in the, the genome acquired uh, that company. And Metametrics was very well respected as a company. So it was a good acquisition. You know, it, it came up with some stuff. And that is a combination between the culturing approach and PCR, which we were talking about later, which is a genome sequencing, but a, quite inaccurate. If you see something with PCR, it's there. That's a yeah. high probability. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, I'm not a doctor and, you know, don't, please don't trust my advice. But if I did have some kind of gut issue, I would want the functional medicine doctor to use what, you know, he or she is familiar with and comfortable with. And they seem to be comfortable with this. And I would trust those results because, um, you know, it's been used for years and years. Doctors have, have learned things that work or don't work about them. I look at the, the other genomic results like the 16S and, and right. uh, genomic results as being kind of cool for somebody like me and definitely worth watching for future potential yeah but if i were really sick i would want to stick with what the doctor right. knows and trusts. yeah yeah exactly and so i know some functional medicine practices have evaluated 16s based testing and have done trials with it you know but so far they're like you know this isn't going to be uh, good enough in terms of diagnostic and also just the cost. Uh, maybe it would pull out some things sometimes and be a little bit indicative of something or just help you to explore doing a PCR with something. But they felt like the cost benefit and just the kind of time involved in getting a patient to do it wasn't worth it at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe. And um, now on the other hand, there are a lot of conditions where the traditional, the culturing or even the PCR approaches, you know, they can't find out what's wrong. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. And that, I think, that's uh, that's where the place is for um, a little bit more experimental, and you want to look at a bigger picture, and that's where you get the you know the 16S and the metagenomics approaches, because 
you will see a lot more. Absolutely. And after you've looked at zillions of samples the way I have, you do start to see patterns and you start to see when something looks anomalous and you say, hmm. And uh, those are the kinds of things that um, that if you're just relying on culturing approaches, you, you probably wouldn't be able to see. Absolutely. I've been really interested in the shotgun in particular uh, for this to pick up things that we said before, like PCR, basically you have to say, I want to find a poodle. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or I yeah. want to find you know a dog in the mass of everything in the world. So you have to really know what you're looking for, otherwise you'll just get a, a negative and it costs money. Whereas a shotgun, you're just trying to pick up. So if you don't know what you're looking for, but you think there's something there, it's a good idea to yeah. get a shotgun to give you an indication. So I did a recent one. Richard and I were talking um, a shotgun approach, which is looking for pathogens and things like this, which is the aperiomics. A lab test, and I did a shotgun sample of my um, my poop, and uh, you know there was there were a few different pathogens and some others that uh, came up which were unknowns. A lot of them unknowns actually, because it's a relatively new service, and this is where you see the bioinformatics pipeline. You know their reference database and so on. They told me the benchmarks they have so far, they don't have enough data. So there's some interesting stuff, but there's a lot of unknowns. We don't know if this is pathogenic or not because we don't know if every you know a lot of people have this and it's they're going fine. So, but you know, I think that 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 for me was an interesting test because it was using shotgun uh, just to maybe potentially pick up something interesting and then go after it with PCR. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I would love to see results uh, that people do side by side, where if you you submit the same sample to two different labs, yeah, um, it would be it's really interesting to compare that. Yeah, yeah. So I did that with the the GI map from Diagnostic Laboratories. Also, you buy, but unfortunately, somehow that was lost. Wiver in the post. I don't know what happened with it. So I did free labs. Uh, GI map we haven't discussed is a PCR-based test, and uh, that's from Diagnostics Laboratories. And there's a lot of uh, functional medicine practitioners who are now looking at that one because it is PCR-based. So again, if you pick something up and it's looking for quite a number of problematic bacteria, parasites, and so on, then it can be pretty useful. It's a little bit more expensive, but that's a good one. So I ran that next to the Aperiomics, um, and I had that back. And I was trying to cross them, but nothing, uh, nothing crossed actually. Oh, you didn't find any, like there was no, no consistency between the two. No, I didn't find the same. So I found the cholera I found the cholera in the GI map. So I trust that because it's PCR based. It yeah. didn't turn up in the shotgun, which, which could be Interesting. the reference database that they haven't put it, that species in that specific strain in even, or, you know, it could be the bioinformatics pipeline that they haven't built out. Yeah, you know, there's, there's so many different reasons that that might not be. But it goes back to what Richard was saying earlier, is that, you know, if you're using different labs, it's not necessarily going to pick up the same stuff at this stage. That's interesting if they couldn't find uh, cholera right. in, the, in uh, two different samples. Um, you know, I mean, part of it also could be that if we're talking about minute amounts, the 16S, I'm sorry, the, even the metagenomics approaches, you're only looking at a certain number of, you're not looking at every single gene in there. You're still looking at a subset of all the different genes because you can't sequence all gazillion of them. The PCR approach, though, you're looking for a particular one. And so you stick in some primers that will cut every single copy of DNA that has that one in there. You'd have to ask a, you know, somebody who's more knowledgeable about the lab science than I am to, you know, to state this more equivocally but, or unequivocally. But when you, when you do that, you will know that uh, the following DNA snippets came from that microbe. Whereas with the shotgun approach, you're going to know at a broad level because you've looked at as many as you could, but you haven't looked at absolutely every single one of them. 
Yeah. And when you're talking about minute amounts, that might make the difference. Yeah, I think the nice thing about going back to genomics is that it will get better over time as these databases yeah. and these bioinformatics pipeline, as the comp- each company basically gathers data and experience. And eventually, hopefully, there'll be some type of collaboration. You know, I, I don't know what would be up in the future, but it would be nice if there was a way to match these together and get out. I don't know if you... That would be neat. Yeah, it would be neat to have a bunch of people all comparing our results <laughs> from the different labs. That would be... Yeah, and, and trying to build conversion tables or something. Some, something yeah, that you, you know, a tool where you could convert your ubiome into your American gut or whatever you wanted and... You know, and that would be more comparable. That's how you compare. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, in fact, actually, it's funny because uh, um, American Gut is one of the few labs that uh, you submit the sample dry. In other words, you just put it on a Q-tip and you send it in dry. You don't put it in a special Nothing. offering vial. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I asked the lab about that because, you know, that's kind of odd. Right. And they know that there are certain species that when they are dry, they continue to multiply because it doesn't, it's not dead yeah. when it comes out of your body. And yeah. some of them when they're exposed to oxygen, immediately die. But some of them right. don't. In fact, some of them thrive on, and you get a bloom, actually, in some species. Mm. And what American Gut does, and they've written a paper about this. They're very upfront about it. That what they do is they run a, in their bioinformatics pipeline, they've already tested which species are thriving in an oxygen environment, and they filter those out. And they say, oh, well, you collected this sample on such and such date. That means that this much time has passed, which means that luck, likely this much wow. of this species of bloom. And we're just going to go yeah. and adjust the final result that way. Whereas basically, your biomes test and others, they're killing all the bacteria straight away to preserve them in the state right. that were yes. in the uh, stool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And again, that's, that's going to be a difference in the pipeline. You're going to get different results. That, that, right? I mean, I can imagine <laughs> that. I mean, that introduces basically another variable. I wonder why they didn't decide to eliminate Well, the reason they didn't do that is because the people at American Gut are super careful scientists. And what they care mostly about is consistency across all their different samples. They want to make sure that every single sample is conducted under the same conditions. And they also, at least in the beginning, they were working a lot in um, environments like like outside the United States, where maybe um, the collection procedure was a little bit more erratic. And they just wanted to be able to, so they could take all the different samples and and, uh, treat them exactly the same way. They've got a paper on this where they they show you know that uh, it doesn't matter as much as you might think, but still, yeah, it's another area where the pipelines can be different. For you guys at home, just a, a quick uh, reference there. Like I spoke to Rob Knight from the American Gut a while back. You know, so if you wanted to know more about uh, what he was doing there, he talks about where they got the fir- the first data and so on for that project. Okay, great. How about the 16S labs, right? Because you, you, you know all the 16S labs really well. Yeah, well, let me, let's talk about the 16S. Now, first of all, I want to repeat, to just in full transparency, I am a friend of Ubiome. I, you know, I'm a former employee. I'm a, I'm a happy um, user of them for a long time. But I have spent time with their scientists. I trust their scientists. I think they're pretty um, careful about how they put stuff in the lab. Now, that said, uh, there are lots of other labs that I've worked with as well. Um, and I, just kind of going through the differences. We talked about American Gut. You know, I think that American Gut is scientifically, you know, they're the most sound lab. You've had Rob Knight on this show. Um, You know, he's a very smart guy, well-published, extremely careful scientist, knows everybody. And they have published a lot of results based on their American Gut cohorts, and they'll continue publishing. Um, They take their science very seriously. The other thing about them is that they're ultra-transparent. Every single one of their, um, you know, all the software tools that they use is all open source. They anonymize and then Anybody who wants to can go look at their data and reproduce the results. In fact, they even have Python notebooks where they, where if you don't trust something that they published in a paper, you can go run it yourself on your own Python and see. Um, so it's very transparent from that point of view. The other um, company that I would call out is um, uh, it's a newer company called Thrive. 
in um, Santa Clara that they're focusing on personalized uh, probiotics. But the CEO, Richard Lin, is an example of the kind of person I like to see running one of these companies because he cares a lot. He's uh, He's been trying to solve some of his own issues. And so uh, he founded a company essentially to go in and help yeah, and cool. help resolve that. So he cares a lot mm. and he's especially focused on actionable results. Um, so I like them. There are lots of other labs. Um, I won't go into all the names. I haven't tried a lot of them. One that I will bring up though is um, there's a company called GenCove that focuses mostly on genomics. So they'll take a mouth sample um, but what's cool about them is that they'll run their mouth sample, the mouth sample, you know, the swab that you give um, from your mouth. Uh, yep. You'll get the the DNA results, just like with 23andMe, very comparable to 23andMe. But they also give you the microbiome breakdown. So there's that company. And there are lots of other companies uh, that are doing 16S, 16S right. in one form or another. So that's that's very similar to the Atlas Biomed guys who actually came from Russia. So they were doing studies in Russia. And now they're in the UK as well. So they got the two populations so they've combined in their interface the DNA and the microbiome. So it's, it's quite interesting. You know, they've, I would say they got a lot of recommendations. We'll get into this a little bit, a little bit but they got a lot of recommendations in there and study references and, and stuff like that. It's quite interesting. They're quite strong on their recommendations from the data. Interesting. Do they, um, so what kind of sample do you give them? Is it a mouth swab or both or blood or what? What do you give them? Sorry, this is for the gut, right? So it's, it's just it's, gut, okay. Uh-huh. It's oh for the saliva, no for the DNA, it's saliva. You're correct, right? Yes. Um, and then for the gut, it's the usual poop. Yes, uh, okay. Thing. So you do the test at the same time, or I mean, you could send the DNA in whenever you wanted. Yeah, yep, that's right. They're trying to combine that to get more information to see correlations, things like that. That's really interesting. Yeah. And their plan is, I mean, I think this will get more interesting. I, I went to see them last week, and as you know, uh, so I was talking to them a lot. Um, and basically, their their plan is now to get into blood tests as well, um, and to bring this kind of information to clinicians, where you combine DNA, microbiome, and blood test results, metabolomics, and some of the standard stuff as well, like inflammation, whatever it is that doctors have been using for a long time, and it could give a bit more context. So they haven't figured how they're going to do that, but the idea is to provide more context around these blood tests, try and make the links and, and oh, stuff like that to provide some, you know, a better tool basically for, you know, looking, looking at patients. And I think it's, if it's done that way, led by blood tests, which have been used for a very long time in diagnosis anyway, and you add information and context with the DNA and um, the microbiome, then that, that actually sounds quite useful. That's right. This reminds me, there's another company in the U.S. called Aravel, based here in Seattle, and they are now available. I know they're in uh, on the West Coast in California and here. They might be nationwide at this point, but they um, it's very similar kind of thing. Where for, I think it's a thousand bucks for a one year program. They do a I think it's a 30x genomic sequence. They test your microbiome. They do your blood test, and there are a couple of things like you get. They give you a Fitbit and measure your activity, and then they assign you a personal nutritionist. And uh, you have like once a month meetings with them and you can ask them email questions and that sort of stuff. And they work with you on whatever issue you want. And I thought, you know, that's, I, I think that is the direction that um, I think seriously trying to solve a problem. That's what you should be doing because it's this holistic look at the blood results, the microbiome, the, you know, the genetics and all that stuff together. And consultation and, and an expert to actually help you work, work through it. Because right now, frankly, a lot of these services had to start as consumer facing in order to get the volume of data and build up their databases, right? Because that was the only way that you were going to get enough data to be able to start seeing patterns and start getting past this first hurdle. And I think it was always sold like that anyway. This is informational. It's not diagnostic. It's not, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be used like that. 
that's really the idea. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's 16S. And you know, like I said, Atlas, Atlas Biomed, that was a 16S as well. And then we have the metagenomics shotgun ones, which um, I was quite quite excited about. I you know I spoke to Aaron Segal and um, Lee Segal in a previous episode about their work, and that was that resulted in day two. And so I was kind of looking yep. forward to that because it was the first shotgun uh, service to come out that was a reasonable cost. I think at the time it was like two hundred or three hundred dollars. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's that one, and you've done that as well, and you published a review about it. But so, so what did you think of day two, and what were your? I, I thought day two is very cool. Um, mm. They you submit the sample. It took a while to get back, but they're just getting started. And the, what's neat about it is that uh, Aaron Segal, as you mentioned, is um, did a lot of really cool research where they were able to identify, I guess, bl glucose response levels dependent on what's going on in the microbiome. And so by looking just at the microbiome, they're able to tell how your glucose is likely to respond to, how your insulin levels are likely to respond to um, what's in your diet. And they ran this big uh, machine learning algorithm against all the different kinds of food types. And they had, I think, a thousand volunteers and they did a whole bunch of studies. And, and now you've got, you get, so they give you this app. So day two, then um, you get an app that goes through the food groups and tells you how likely you are to respond well or poorly to a particular type of food. Um, it's very well yeah. done. In terms of glucose response, right? That's right. It's, uh -huh. it's just glucose response. So, so we know that. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and they had large studies. They, got, they had a pretty large population, so over a thousand people. Yeah, and it was, um, and, you know, and they're careful scientists, and they published the results. And you know, the kind of the interesting takeaway that, um, from Aaron Segal's work was that there are some people who, your standard diet advice says you should always eat you know, the whole grain version instead of the, you know, the, um, the white bread version. But there are some people who it's the exact opposite advice. And uh, this algorithm seems to be pretty good at telling which one you are. <laughs> And so for in, in my case, for example, with um, day two, it's it's showing that I should be eating things with more fat in them. And so something. Yeah. So there you go, Mr. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> guy, yeah. And um, and it was pretty accurate for me. It showed that, uh, for example, I'm not I'm not lactose intolerant. I can handle dairy and it recommends that I have dairy and and. Um, yeah, I found most of the uh, most of the suggestions to be reasonable. The other nice thing about them is that they're not based just on a particular food, but they recognize that food is in context. So having a slice of toast is not the same as having a slice of toast with some butter on it. The way that your body's going to respond is totally different. And they have a lot of recommendations for that. Absolutely. Yep. You know, so I'm, I'm pretty impressed. I'm, I'm you know, waiting to see how they do. A lot of the, the initial research was all done in Israel. And so they're running a study now, I guess, in the United States. And I think actually you had, when you had them on your podcast, I think that's one of the things they mentioned, they're doing something with Mayo Clinic, I think. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing how that how that turns out in the next couple of years. Yeah, be, that would be pretty cool when they get more more data. Um, because you know, I think personally, glucose response is just one of the highest impact things you can do, uh, relatively simply by you know yeah. changing your diet, sometimes sleep, and other factors as well. Um, but really important. So going back yeah, to this personalized, seen, um, just one quick thing: Did you yeah. see the new book that Aaron Segal and his co-author put out? No, um, I didn't. It's called Thanks. Personalized Diet. That's worth reading. Yeah, that's worth reading because he told it's called the Personalized Diet. Okay, great. And uh, go check it. It just came out, and I just read it. It's a wonderful book. Oh, awesome! It go goes ahead. into a lot of details. And what's cool is that in the end, he gives suggestions for how you can test yourself using like just a, a cheap glucose meter, and gives you know suggestions for that. That's kind of cool. Excellent, excellent. That sounds like a little bit like the Rob Wolf test that was uh, in Wired to Eat. I yeah, put some charts uh, up on that. It's it's a standard, actually, glucose tolerance test to different foods. But you learn a, a hell of a lot. I don't know if it's the same. But yeah, that, it can be done. Just a blood meter can tell you a lot of information. 
So I've been doing this a lot in one of my other pastimes currently. I've been developing a food which uses uh, different fibers because I don't want it to be glycemic because I'm not a fan of high glycemic responses uh, similar to the Aaron Cigar guys. So I've looked at a lot of different fibers and I can tell you that there is definitely a lot of variation between because when I go to a company and I ask them for a fiber, there's many of these. There's, there's a lot of different fibers that are created by companies now in different ways. Basically, uh, fibers are carbohydrate, which is resistant to getting broken down in the body, right? So that's what, the way you got to look at it. So there's a potential high glycemic response from a fiber because your biome may be able to digest it and turn it into glucose, whereas someone else's maybe not. And it's going to pass through you and you get no glycemic response. So I've had quite a fun time testing a lot of different fibers um, and collecting a lot of data on that and seeing the different responses. And I plan to now do that on a population because I understand that just because I get these particular responses doesn't mean that everyone's going to get that response. So it's actually tricky with these fibers and everything. You know, there's a lot of um, products that state like low carb or whatever, right? But they often have different fibers in them. And it's it's just not that simple, unfortunately. That's very yeah. interesting. It would be especially interesting if you could trace it to which microbe is involved. Oh yeah. Um, and I then, know, you know, right? there might be some way there might be a, a simple little change to the formula where you add a particular microbe or you add something that that microbe likes to eat, and suddenly now that fiber that caused the bad glucose response is suddenly just fine. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's, but it's people cool. like day two are going to have the best information because they're collecting. I always think yep. about all this whole area. And everything I've been thinking about this for quite a while in terms of us trying to get ahead is like who who has the data? Like if you want an answer to something, go yeah. and find mm -hmm. the people with the most quality data. It has to be quality data, and yeah. you're not going to be you're going to be the closest to the answer <laughs> at that point. Yeah, you know, if you can get talking to those guys and what they're doing with that. Yeah, that's true. Yep, that's right. So we should also talk about Viome, which is the other uh, kind of metagenomics comp company there. They actually, they're the transcriptomics one that we talked about. And um, they just came out and I just got my results back a month or so ago. And again, you know, they give you this big, it's an, it's an app where they'll give you a big breakdown of the different microbes that you have. Actually, it's the different, um, they, they, they try to stress that it's not the microbes themselves, it's the, the activity of the microbes. And then they break it down and tell you what kinds of foods that you should eat or not. And it's a pretty impressive list of um, people backing the company. They've got, um, if you look at their board of advisors, it includes people like Ray Kurzweil and mm. Aubrey Ray, the, the um, life extension guy. And, you know, the Bulletproof Empire, Dave Asprey is a big fan of them. And you'll see a lot of, uh, you'll see a lot of um, like Ben Greenfield Fitness, you know, et cetera. There's a lot of people. They've got their made name out in the media more than most companies quicker. Yeah, that's right. And their founder, uh, Naveen Jain, you know, one of the things that I respect about him, he really genuinely believes in himself. So, you know, he's out there himself personally um, pitching the product and he'll talk about his own results and he'll, uh, he's on, they've got a, a private Facebook group where they talk about it and he's one of the active participants, you know, answering questions about it. So they're, you know, they're very serious. They're hiring a lot of people. They claim that they're based on some lab science that was developed out of the Los Alamos lab uh, in um, New Mexico over, you know, many years. I've had a hard time figuring out from a scientific point of view, exactly how they're doing the work. One of the things they, if you go to their website, they say specifically that they're not going to release the, the raw data. So it's a little hard to tell exactly what's going on and how they're coming up with the recommendations. And it's something that I hope that they'll be a little bit more transparent about. Yeah, and this is something, you know, we wanted to talk about is like, you know, basically 
If you're thinking about doing some labs, what kinds of things do you want to take into account? Let's talk a little bit about what we've actually run. Like what labs have we both used? Uh, I'm starting with you, Richard. Like what labs have you run over the last, uh, is it four years? Well, okay. So, um, uh, so I'm a little crazy. Uh, I've done uh, well over 500 samples from Ubiome, another, you know, several dozen from other different labs. Um, you know, probably all told I'm up at close to say 600 samples. <laughs> and at Ubiome, you were doing daily ones, right? That's right. Yeah. So I have daily samples for more than a year. Which means you were uh, pooping but, every day. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> at yeah, least that's once. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I should say, uh, I, I shouldn't be that, uh, that, I should be more precise. No, not every single day. That's right. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of gaps in it. But generally speaking, I have near daily samples for more than a year. And then I have um, other fairly regular samples going back through 2014. What's also cool about it is that I tracked all of the food that I ate the whole time and my exercise and my sleep and that sort of stuff. And so I'm able to run all these cool correlations to figure out what I learned. So that's very cool. I've done also uh, biome testing, day two, Thrive. I mentioned GenCove. Let's see who else. I've not done any of the culturing tests. But what's also cool is that I've done a lot of these side by side just to see, you know, to, to, to cross compare among themselves, and um, which has been interesting. A lot of these labs have interfaces where you have to access the data. So I can't do it for them, all of them, but I'll put up samples of any that I've done that are basically PDFs or something that you can actually yeah, yeah. see. I'm happy to show mine as well, yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll combine we'll combine our things to try and give you a picture of what most of these look like. Can't be all of them just because some don't actually uh, deliver the information in that in that approach, but um, it should give you a good idea of what all of these different things look like and the kind of microbes they're looking at and stuff like that. From my side, I started with Ubiome when they launched, and, and that's when Richard also got into it, I believe. And uh, the, the one of these uh, Kickstarter campaigns, although it was Indiegogo, because uh, Indiegogo, ki- yes, uh-huh. ki- Kickstarter doesn't allow that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just kind of amazing that it's already that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> so I've just done seven Ubiome tests. Quite a bunch of those were the five. I don't know if you're doing the five. That's the five sites. Psych- yeah, I've done. Um, I've done. The, it's a gut, mouth, skin, nose, genitals. I've done them all. Yeah, I've done I've done semen as well because I was curious. <laughs> it's like yeah, I, was, I was I was like playing around with different stuff, uh, which they don't normally do, and they haven't got a lot of benchmark data on that. But so the standard ones that you said are the you know the mouth, the genitals, and um, the skin was and, and they do teeth as well. Actually, they did the dental. That's one. right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. they have quite a bit and, of data on those. Yeah, and and we could talk forever about some of the things that I've learned from all of my studies. Um, and you know, I'll give you a link to my. Um, I've ri- been writing some of the um, some of my results up. But don't forget the there's the microbiome is more than just the gut, and mm. you can learn a lot of things from skin and from mouth and nose as well. Right, exactly. And you know, there's actually a little hack. We'll we'll talk about some hacks we've done and things that are actually potentially done something um, yeah. <laughs> in, in a little bit. So the other ones I've done is the Viome one as well, day two, COC, you know, both of us have done that. I've done the Atlas Biomed one because I'm based in the UK. And I've done quite a few of those uh, culture and PCR-based tests. So, you know, that's a, that's a little bit different there. All right, let's, let's just dive in to uh, see what kind of things we found from this. First of all, like, what, what could we say about comparison of data? We were talking about how they're not necessarily comparable. Yeah, um, that's kind of a that's an interesting thing. Yeah, so I have done comparing my um, my 16s results with uh, both Viome and Day Two, and I find that the at the high level they're actually fairly different. I shouldn't say you know super different. It's sort of like you can see the chart here that, for example, in 
day two, it says that my formicutes level is about 50%. When I tested on Ubiome, um, you know, one of my Ubiome tests shows it's like 59%. My bacteroidetes in day two is like 45%. Ubiome tested it out as more like 30%. There are, you know, that sounds like a fairly significant difference, but if you've seen a lot of samples, you realize that it's probably not as significant as it might sound because there's a lot of variability day to day anyway. Um, the one thing that I did notice was that, however, the ordering, in other words, like which was the most dominant, which was the second dominant, et cetera, was pretty consistent, which is nice to know. That means that at least at the phylum level, you can kind of trust that if it says that you've got higher, you know, firmicutes than bacteroidetes, then maybe you really do. Um, the other part is that if it says that you've got varicomicrobia, which is the phylum that includes acromantia, which is, you know, an important one for eating the mucin level and it's considered, you know, uh, um, important for health. If day two shows that you have it, it's, it's likely that uh, you biome will show that you have it as well, which is it's, it's nice to see a little bit of consistency there. Right, we were talking about this a, a little bit earlier because I was comparing all the species that I've picked up in different ones. And, you know, obviously they don't correlate all the time. So Richard was yeah. saying that probably the way to look at it is that if it turns up in two tests and it's not in one test, then it could be just that the, the, it's likely it's there. And, you know, it might be worth doing a PCR or whatever, but it's it's likely it's there. And it's that the bioinformatics library of the other one maybe doesn't include that species, right? They haven't they haven't got the, the references in a database or something, you know, does it, I mean, but that, that's kind of like a starting assumption you could start with in your exploration to try and nail it down, whether it's there or not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. And the other thing, I, uh, again, like I would emphasize, look at presence versus absence yep. and be a little bit less concerned about the abundance. Right. Because and that's going to vary a lot. Well, so that's interesting. On your Viome, you've got this spirochetes of. Yeah, the Viome one is interesting. Yeah. And I don't know how to I don't know how to interpret that because it's so it shows that I have, uh, what is it, 70 nine percent it's off the charts compared to the others yeah it's off the charts yeah and now what uh they'll say is that you know that's the one that we're at that's those are the microbes that are active what level is that is that the family or is it the genus it says no it's it says the so my my test result says 80 percent of uh, spirochetes at the phylum level and then it shows at the genus level, the um, the genus um, Spirochita is forty six percent. So it's missing one. Yeah, there's just something that doesn't add up about it, and I don't I don't really understand how to interpret the results. And I've asked them, and right? Any- so it sounds like their library isn't quite there yet, and maybe there is. For people who don't know, home Spirochetes get a bad rep because uh, Lyme borreliosis, Borrelia, uh, which is of course you know quite a bit of a problem for some people is a spirochete. It's, that's the family it's in. So when, when people see spirochetes, typically, and when they're talking about them, they're talking about pathogens. So when you see it in your samples, and I've seen it in my uh, Ubiome as, as well, something I actually did a little project on it, which I'll, you know, in the show notes, we'll put up, you know, anything we talk about, all, all that usual stuff. But yeah, so it's, it's, I bet you were interested when such a high amount of spirochetes turned up and you were like, well, okay, well, what kind of species is there? Yeah, and uh, the results show it broken down by phylum, genus and species. And what was odd is that at the phylum level, it said 80% spirochetes. At the genus level, it said only 46%. And there were no spirochetes at the species level. And the genus level, all of the different genus, all of the different genera added up to, I think it was something like 90%. Right. In other words, so they, they they think they identified all the genus, all, right. the, all the genera that were in there, mm. but it wasn't didn't add up. So I'm not sure exactly yeah. how that works. Well, so I had a little problem as well. Uh, when I got my results, uh, I had 30 bacteria in the total, which were showing up, which I felt 
was relatively low. And so I talked to them a bit about that. And they, you know, at the time they felt that was correct. That was when Byram first came out. I mean, it was sometime last year. I got my results relatively early. So things may have moved on since then. I would expect, as they're working on the database and all of that kind of stuff, that I'll have more. And I think I haven't counted them recently, but I need to count them up again. I think I now have more uh, that have turned up. Yeah, and they're pretty clear about, you know, they're selling a, a subscription. So right now it's like $400 a year or something like that. And so they claim that it's a subscription because they keep updating your results as they learn more information. Yeah. So anyway, so I don't know how to interpret that. The other part about, I mean, Biome, like day two, has a list of foods that you should eat or not eat. And what I found was there was some consistency between the day two algorithm, and the Biome algorithm. For example, both agreed that I can handle lactose, you know, that I can handle dairy products. Mm. Both agreed that I should stay away from grains, although Biome thought that whole grains were okay in a lot of cases. And then there were just some odd ones. Like, for example, Viome says that I shouldn't eat pork. I think I may have had that too. I had some quite odd things in there. The issue I had with it was that there's no reasoning. For the Viome, we don't really know what they're looking at, why they're making these decisions. Um, We discussed day two. Basically, it's all we know what it's based on. It's based on the glycemic response. And there's an academic paper where they showed, you know, the reasoning behind it. And you can... You know, there's all the caveats that you would see normally in any kind of yeah. academic study, but at least you kind of know what direction yeah. they're coming. And then they're very focused just on that glycemic response. So you know yeah. where that recommendation is coming from and they give the ABCD grades. I'm, I would yeah. have loved if they showed the average uh, glucose response uh, for someone with mine. That's what I actually sent in a support email or something like that into them for that, because I'd be like, wow, that would be much cooler, you know, rather than these ABCD uh, categories. You know, they changed it recently, right? They they changed it. Now it's not ABCD. It's uh, they give you a a number from one to 10, I think now. Okay. So that's a bit better. That sounds better. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. All right, cool. Um, But problem with Virum is you have no rationale, no methodology, and it says you shouldn't eat something that you love. I think it says... It, it told me I shouldn't eat chocolate. So it'd be like, you know, I kind of like chocolate and I, I don't and have yeah, any give reason. Give me a reason. Yeah, give yeah. me some kind of Give like, me a reason. Some, give me a, a study. <laughs> you, I, I need something to give up chocolate. Like, you got to give me, like, because I, I don't even know. Maybe you think I'm allergic to it or, what, or, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you're trying to get at. So Atlas Biomed has a lot of recommendations as well in their interface. But what I did like is like wherever there's a recommendation, there's always papers, study papers left yeah. there. And there's always the reasoning. And you can argue that with 16S and, and some of the other limitations they have, maybe they're pushing the edge in terms of their recommendations. But at least they're trying to give, uh, you know, a reasoning and structure and there's a transparency. So I think with the Viome, yeah. the thing for me is like, it's, it's not transparent. And so you can't, like you yeah. don't know what, what you're getting, what the output is. And so how can you do anything with it really yeah. for the moment? Yeah, you kind of have to trust their, you know, their scientists or their, their whatever the result is on this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part of it is, remember also, uh, it might say eat apples. Well, there are lots of different ways you can eat apples. I mean, you, there's a Fuji apple is different than a, this kind of apple. There's an apple that was just picked versus one that, that has been sitting in a truck for a while. There's lots of different kinds of things. And, and to just say blanket statement, eat more apples is... You know, I, I don't find that as scientifically satisfying than um, than it could be. It's one of the reasons I like the, the the day two approach is more to talk about. Well, we're not going to say apple versus not apple. We're going to say you know apple with cheese versus you know like the, a meal made out of you know apple pie or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I was talking with a a guy who runs, runs another bioinformatics company just the other day about this, and basically a lot of people have 
a religion about food, right? It's not like everyone's really objective about this. Vegans are vegans and ketogenic people are yeah. ketogenic. I'm guilty of that one. And <laughs> it tends to be an emotional thing. I tend to, I try to be more objective and numbers driven, but you know, the problem is also when we're doing these tests, if you tell me not to eat my favorite vegan food and I'm a vegan, you really got to like the, and the argument is say glycemic response. And a lot of vegans don't care about glycemic response, right? I think. So if you actually gave us the reasoning, then different type of people with different approaches and thinking towards their eating style would be able to choose. They'd be like, oh, but I don't care about that, right? I don't care about glycemic response, or I don't care about the other factor, or I don't care about allergies or whatever it is that, you know, the, the reasoning is. And at least that would give you a better, you know, a better framework in order to make a decision. That's a good idea. Yeah. Have you used Inside Tracker, the blood testing company? Um, I haven't. I know, I, you know, they were on a yeah. show. A that, while that, that is, um, and that's another company I, I have a lot of respect for. It's not the microbiome, but they have, um, it's all about blood testing. And um, they do exactly that. They'll, um, you can type in, you can say, I'm a vegan. Right. Now give me your suggestions. Yeah. Or right, right. I'm a carnivore. Now give me your suggestions. And, and it'll be tailor-made for you because they recognize, like you say, that you may have another framework that you're thinking about. And uh, if you're diet suggestions can't fit in my framework, I may have to either give up my framework or maybe I'll give up you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is something I'm seeing more in my results. In the re when the recommendations come up, uh, when I'm looking at them, I'm like, oh, you know, that doesn't fit with the ketogenic diet. That's where I am currently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so you want me to eat more of that, but, you know, I'm just, I'm not interested. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there you go, even if I'm being objective. But if I had more information, I might reconsider it a bit more. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so what other kind of interesting stuff have we discovered here. The other contrast, like I was, I was referring to, I was trying to do earlier was uh, the epiomics, which is a shotgun sequence as well. And I was trying to compare it with the PCR to identify similar things, but that didn't quite go as well either. So I think the shotgun technology, although it's more detailed than the 16S, it's going to take time for those uh, databases and uh, bioinformatic pipelines to evolve so that it's picking up everything. and Yeah, I think you're right. And I, like I said, I think you probably can trust a single lab over time. So if you're comparing, uh, you know, if you're doing A-B testing on a particular kind of in intervention and you follow the same lab both times, you may be able to trust that. But looking at the results from different labs, I just, I just don't know how useful that is a lot of times, especially when you get down to the species level or down to something, you know, very, very particular. <laughs> There's just too many ways that they can be different. So because I've mentioned the uh, ketogenic diet, one interesting thing is that, you know, if you look at some of the studies, they suggest that um, if you're on a high ketogenic diet, so I've been on a ketogenic diet for something like, you know, since uh, 2011, and then really seriously, since January 2016, I was actually blood testing and stuff to make sure. What they say is you should see increased microbes of the genus Spectroides and decreased Firmicutes. And if you look at all my early Ubiome tests, 2014, 2015, 2016, a lot of the time it's the opposite. Hmm. You know, and um, I'm Firmicutes dominant. I remember looking at this when I was first, I was like, that doesn't really sound like me. And I think this goes back to the papers sometimes as well. The studies, when they're looking at these things, I've got a team working looking at um, ketogenic studies and stuff like that. And when you look at a lot of the ketogenic studies, they have very different diets in them, unfortunately. And, you know, 40 grams carbs five grams carbs, uh, 50 grams carbs, and doing different things. So a lot of things, when you look at these studies even, you have to kind of look at the detail of the studies, what, they, what were they actually doing, yeah. and, and then the diet. So, you know, a complaint, I think, and this is probably, I, think, I would bet that the reason I'm getting a different result there is because I have a, what I would call a well-formulated 
ketogenic diet, which means that I eat a lot of vegetables and, um, you know, fibers and things like that. Because I think the main hypothesis there is that someone on a ketogenic diet is eating less fiber, basically, to feed his gut biome. And therefore, you're seeing that inversion. But oh, I see. Yeah, I'm not seeing point. it. Yeah. So I think it's because the type of ketogenic diet I'm running is, is different to that. So even when you're looking at some of these studies, you have to be careful to look at the, the details of them as well. And does it exactly resemble you? That's true. Yeah, that's true. Because not all ketogenic diets are going to affect the microbiome the same way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then there, and then you get into whole definitional issues of some people say that this or that is a you know is ketogenic, and other people would dispute it. Yeah, yeah, that's all tricky. Mm. Um, well, let's talk about some of the things that we've done in your show notes. I hope we can put some of these uh, images that I put up here. But there's one in particular that was, I guess, if you're asking me like my takeaways. Yeah, I think people need to recognize that a broad measure like something like diversity, which is something a lot of people care about, it's real hard to tell what that means. And it's very hard to just put a single number on the, on the concept of diversity. We all sort of intuitively understand that having a diverse microbiome is a good thing because you'll be able to respond better to different challenges that might come up in your, in your environment. But if you have a diversity of pathogens, that, that's not necessarily a good thing. It sort of depends on what's in there. And right. the other part is that, and this is true of the generally I find through daily microbiome testing, is that there's a lot of variability day to day. And so one of the charts that you can look at in here is just showing the diversity that uh, like if you tested me on, on a Monday, you would say I have low diversity. Um, in this case, I have like 1.8. But if you tested me on Tuesday, I was all the way up to 2.3. And then uh, if you waited until the weekend, you know, by, by uh, Saturday, you know, I was at, you know, maybe, you know, still hovering around, you know, 2.1. But then suddenly on Sunday, I plunged to, you know, under 1.8 again. So, so we understand with these uh, diversity algorithms, right, that they're running, is that looking at species diversity or? No, it's looking at the family level, which mm. makes sense because the family level is kind of a good level to look at because you still got a lot of coverage. You'll get close to 100% of all the different things that are there. Um, unlike, say, genus or species where there are a lot of ones that just won't show up in the 16S. In the 16S, yeah, they won't show up. So you yeah. wouldn't be. Yeah, that's why I was, that was yeah. getting at. Maybe it wasn't. So they tested yeah. at the family level. Okay. And it's just looking at, there are a couple of different ways to measure, but one way to measure it is you could think of it as the probability that if I grabbed two things at random, two microbes at random from my gut, the probability they would be the same. Mm. And in the case of if you, for example, if you're Firmicutes dominant, dominant, and a lot of people would have 70% Firmicutes, it's pretty likely that if you grabbed two random microbes that both of them will end up being Firmicutes. But it's very unlikely that two of them would be something else. And that's, that's the way you measure diversity. Um, there are a couple other different measurements for diversity, but they all rely on this idea that kind of in aggregate, we're looking at like how much information is in this uh, signal. And that's a, that's a little difficult to be able to really pin down. Now, that said, the other thing that I point out is that although it's variable day to day, if you look at my picture, and, I'll, and we can put this in the show notes too, if you look at my diversity across a year, mm. yeah, there's a lot of day to day variability, but there's a, there's a trend. There's kind of an average there. And I've looked at this with other people as well, and it's unique to me. So there's something different, something special about my gut that um, is different than your gut. And even though there's a lot of day-to-day -day variability in how that works, I think there really is something there. There's, there's some kind of signal. We just have to understand better what that signal is. Right. So you're saying diversity is interesting, but we don't understand how it, why it oscillates. Yeah, well, and it's partly because we don't understand diversity and <laughs> what that really means. Well, I think it'd be really interesting. You're saying it works at the family level, and that's because... That's how we, we, we measure it at the family level. Usually right. That's the... Right, right. So that's what we're measuring currently. And it, that's not the ideal, right? I mean, ideally, 
maybe with the shotgun, and I don't know if there's studies actually on this, because I'm assuming that the studies were all done on the 16S for diversity. Oh, no, no. People do, people do diversity metrics for any kind of, any sort of sequence. In the, the, okay. The, so they've uh, done it on shotgun as well, but they'd still do yeah. it at the family level. No, just generally speaking, like if you're, ta- if you want to be able to compare two different samples that were done at 16S, yep. you'll probably want to compare at the family level. Yeah. But there are other ways to measure diversity, too, that might be useful, like just counting up the different types, the total different number of species that were found in your sample versus my sample. And you might find that you had 150. I had 130. And, you know, that's kind of interesting to know that you have some microbes that I don't have and maybe vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. But that's hard to capture in a single number. And a lot of people um, like the biome test wants to be able to say in one chart, what is your diversity? People sort of care about that. Um, I'm just my experience is that's hard to. It's hard to pin down. Right. And it's hard to like say it's it's actionable or you can even say, okay, yeah. I, I'm diverse, I'm well. It seems too abstract in terms of a biomarker. People who complain about having low diversity, I say, why don't you test yourself tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might like right. the test result, you get better yeah. tomorrow. I don't know. Yeah, the other um just quickly show you one more of my charts that I that I think is fun. So I tested myself doing a probiotic, taking a pill to see what would happen. And in this chart, you'll see there's a little red splotch on there that shows the, it was about a nine or 10 day period that I was taking this pill daily to try to improve my levels of bifidobacterium. And on this chart, you'll see that it's hard to see there's much difference in the level of bifidobacterium, but there's another huge spike in my bifidobacterium that happened several months before I took that. And and we are talking huge guys, you got to look at the (laughs) chart. it's, It's totally, totally different. And the fact is that that month of um, September, I'd happened to be traveling in New Orleans and eating a lot of red beans and rice, which apparently affects my bifidobacterium levels. And that's kind of the the takeaway lesson for me is that often the best interventions that you're going to have are going to be some kind of food that you eat. Prebiotic. um, It's it's like a prebiotic. Yeah. yeah, Prebiotic or something like that. Yeah. Because I, I think what's going on is that these microbes all interact with one another. And so um, just increasing one is sort of like, you know, you poke on one little thing, hoping that that's going to improve it. But really, that's going to create a cascade effect of a whole bunch of other things. And absolutely. the only way to really improve things is probably holistically. To, yeah, yeah, you know. absolutely. So it comes back to the whole foods approach and everything, right? That we can't approximate, we can't invent a food with our, with our food science because we don't fully understand what's in a whole food, right? That's what's one of the concepts yeah. out there. And so we should just eat whole foods and then, you know, we're going to get everything that we need. And then one day when science has really understood all of the tiny details, we could maybe mimic it. But for now, it's it's probably just not a good bet to be able to do that. Yeah, so really yeah, interesting. That's right. Well, one of the things I came across in terms of a, a test was uh, putting kimchi up your nose. Not, yes, not, I've heard about that, yes. Right, right. Yeah, because we, I think we discussed it before we about on, that. on a past right, yeah. call. So this was something recommended to me by um, a physician because I had some had experienced some um, sinus headaches and people have been experimenting on this. You know, we'll throw the links on the Internet and blogged about this approach to reducing the incidence or eliminating sinus headaches. And basically, there's certain types of kimchi that contain cayenne, which isn't all of them today because there's a lot of different uh, kimchis on the market and they have to be unpasteurized. And basically, you take you don't put kimchi up your nose literally uh, thankfully you take some of the liquid in that so you put a teaspoon in you pull it out and then you dip your finger in it and you put your fingers up your nose both nostrils to get some of that in there and uh so you're snorting the juice basically and yeah. you'll get some the idea is that you get lactobacillus sacchi 
up there and that helps to populate the nose if you're doing that every day and that helps to counter some of the microbes that are potentially causing the sinus headaches by their overgrowth so it's countering their growth basically it did seem to have a positive effect for me but unfortunately i wasn't doing any biome tests or anything like that at the time so there's no data on that it's just an idea that someone might want to test and i'd love to see some biome or something results on it if you do do it so you know, if it you would do be interesting. It. Yeah. So my uh, I, uh, my daughter suffers from you know sinus headaches now and then, and I told her about what you had suggested. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I have this big jar of kimchi still in the refrigerator, um, but she just wasn't interested in trying. <laughs> Doesn't it's it's so kind of a weird know. sensation at first, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like the other the other advice that I got over the internet was um, you should simulate uh, what is it called the brain burn that you get if you drink if you have some very cold like ice cream or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, she doesn't mind doing that, but uh, like eating a lot of ice cream when you have a headache, but wow. the kimchi up the nose thing was a little bit hard for her to try. So obviously there's a lot of probiotics on the market right now, a, a lot of them. And I think going back to what you you were talking about, when you introduce one of those into this environment, and we've been talking about that, you know, there's a homeostasis of that environment. They work together, they feed each other. And you just throw one in there. He's 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 basically getting thrown into an alien population because if you're adding them, it's probably because you don't have them. And so it doesn't really right. fit in with that, you know, that environment right now. And that's probably why. Yeah. I mean, that's my assumption why they're not growing. They're not sticking in a lot of results like yours that you've seen, because yeah. it, it's probably he depends on some other guys, some other bacteria. That'd be interesting studies. Like the feed of bacteria, like everyone you know knows that these are these are beneficial. What other species do we need in there to support them and then concoct basically a probiotic which allows that and maybe adds prebiotics as well? I mean, that sounds good to me. Yeah, and people try doing that. And I've looked at a lot of people who've done A-B testing where they Mm -hmm. test their microbiome before and after. And I have yet to see convincing evidence that any of them does any makes any difference. Right. Yeah. And they're quite expensive, some of them, you know, right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't work. And there have been studies like uh, VSL4, I think, is the one that people yep. talk about, that they've done randomized control trials and they show that such and such marker is actually improved or such and such um, disease state is improved after taking the probiotic. I just haven't seen that demonstrated in the data. The, but that's, the, you know, but that's also like, OK, so maybe it's something that's not being picked up in that particular sequence the bioinformatics pipeline or whatever, and it will turn up in two years when, you know, we're finally tracking it. That's the problem with where we are right now. You know, something could be happening and could be beneficial, and we're just not finding it in the data as well. Yeah, who knows? Or it could be that the way they do the testing, you know, these randomized groups, maybe they all drink a glass of orange juice after they finish it. That's what makes (laughs) the difference. Who knows? Yeah, but I do think that in general, um, like, because a lot of people ask me after all my testing, what do you think about taking probiotic pills? And my general, I just have not seen any good evidence that any kind of pill really helps. That if you want to make a difference in your microbiome, do something involving food. And a variety, you know, I think a, a wide variety makes sense. If you're trying to get diversity, a variety of vegetables, which is supposedly a good rule of thumb for micronutrients and other reasons as well, can't be a bad thing yeah. to do. Yeah. You can have, um, you, you can put up a link to the, um, I've got a, a Medium uh, place where on medium.com where I posted a bunch of my microbiome experience. But, you know, a few of the things I've tried are like kombucha, soylent. Oh, right. That's that's an interesting one. Yeah. So the whole, whole, uh, what do they call it? Nutritionally complete food. Yes. Right. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's quite, there's like 60 companies that have started those now. I didn't realize until I looked into it the other day. Um, Did you do a colonic 
at one point. Was that you? I did. I did that yeah. as well. Yes. And mm-hmm. um, again, you know, my, my takeaway was that I was hoping that there would be some ability to make a major change afterwards where yeah. by feeding myself the right kind of things, but it just bounced right back to the way it was. <laughs> Two weeks later, I was right exactly what I was before. But that's actually, a, that was good feedback for me because I spoke to one physician who's been working in environmental medicine for a very long time about something I had. And he suggested six colonics within two weeks. And he didn't know why, he, but he'd been doing it for 30 years. And he said, I don't understand completely the mechanism, but it really helps with this specific thing. So, you know, I did it, and uh, but I was concerned about my biome, obviously, like doing that and, and colonics and stuff. So when I heard your story, I was like, okay. Yeah, and, and who knows? I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm just one guy. So, right. you know, you one yourself. And equals yeah. one. The other thing yeah. that uh, that you know people should realize, you know, based on my experiment, is that I don't have an appendix. It was removed when I was five years old, and the appendix is known to include. That's where the bacteria gets well, stored. It gets stored. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's so who knows what's going on in my gut? But that's a good test, though, because then you don't have that storage device, basically. You'd think, yeah, but yeah, you know, who knows? yeah, but that that is a pretty important n equals one difference there. Yeah. So, but nevertheless, for me at least everything just seemed to bounce back. And I found that my microbiome is pretty resilient to just about any kind of change. Yeah, hard to change. Yeah, that's kind of the bottom line. All right, so we dive through like some of our own personal experiences there trying to change it. And as you've kind of heard, like it's not easy to change your microbiome, it seems. But it doesn't mean it's not worth experimenting with. Uh, So the thing we do now is like kind of take a step back and look at the big picture of all of these labs and everything, see where they are and... What kind of you know thoughts we have about using them, I guess, right now? What's valuable to you, you the guys at home, to be doing with these right now and potentially in the future? Richard, what, what are your like overall thoughts? Well, so um, it's hard to beat the price of 16S. And uh, you know, it is something that it's, it's also um, pretty easy to do. It's not a, you don't have to poop in a box. You don't have to put tablespoons of, you know, laying on the floor kind of thing like that. It's just relatively easy to do. And so for that reason alone, I think it's worth doing, you know, 16S tests. Um, you know, do a couple, you know, over time, or if you're trying to check out one, uh, the effect that it has on one particular thing, you know, it's cheap and easy. If I just jump in there, I think that's interesting also because of what we've said about like the bioinformatics uh, pipelines and the databases will be evolving and getting better over time. And that sample is, you know, part of your history, which could be useful if, if, and this is a, actually a Jessica, she came on the show way, way, way back and she suggested it was a good, say you get sick in the future and it could be gut related and you have that sample as the bioinformatics and the database evolves, you could then look back at that and be able to see what the difference is. And then you would have, you know, you would be able to formulate some kind of plan to try and get back there at least. So just for that reason, kind of for this historic, like storing your sample, if you ever need it in the future, it's, got, it's a reasonable idea. Yep. I think that's something everybody should do. And we've talked about the other, the other tests. So I told you about, um, so day two, um, I like the science behind them. It's like 300 something dollars, I guess. A little bit expensive, I think, that a lot of people would find that for, it'd probably be useful for you if you were looking at a particular condition, in particular, any of the metabolic diseases like diabetes. I would think that you'd want to do this because it's going to tell you, um, based on this, um, you know, these peer-reviewed studies, it's going to tell you something about your glucose response to different kinds of foods. Yeah, if you're if you're overweight, and you know, if you're really overweight, yeah. it's probably interesting because it might just pick out the, one of those foods that is your main go-to every day. What I like to think about these kind of tests, right? Because we're saying they're not hundred percent, but it's a good broad picture. And if some of these foods that you're eating every day come up as red. 
in the, in their algorithm, you can then go and test them properly, right? And you've saved a lot of time and effort because it gave you that broad look at all of the foods. Um, and it gave you some way of basically strategic focusing on like five different foods that you're eating a lot and turn up red there. And then you could do a proper glucose test with a meter on each of those, whereas you obviously couldn't do that on thousands of different foods you're eating or hundreds uh, that you're eating each week. Yeah, that's right. And uh, like the example I'll give is uh, I have always eaten a lot of bananas. Now, I'm aware of the, you know, the carb, you know, the sweetness and everything else. But bananas, what I always thought, you know, nutritionists say it's, you know, it's a, it's a fruit, it's healthy and it's easy to eat. But both my day two and biome results came back saying that I should avoid bananas, which I thought, you know, that's kind of that's kind of interesting evidence. And so um, that's the kind of thing I, I probably wouldn't have thought about. Have you my first question is, have you tested your glucose response to that? I'd really like to see. I mean, I test my glucose response. I haven't noticed any major differences. Mm. I've not tested my glucose response after eating a banana. I should do that. It'd be right, that yeah, that's what I would love to see. Yeah, to, that's a good to, idea. Yeah, I'll try to marry that. that. Yeah, right. yeah, please and do. We'll and then we'll, we'll chat about it later. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and you know, those are the those. I guess those are the big uh, commercially available ones in the U.S. You mentioned Atlas Biomed and and yes, Aperiomics. Uh, is that what you said? So Aperiomics is designed that their whole thing is focusing on pathogens. They work. They mostly work with physicians, and they mostly get people who have strange illnesses and haven't been able to figure anything out. And uh, yeah, I mean, she's got some interesting stories. Um, I'll tell you because I've been talking to the girl who runs the lab. And um, I figure I'm going to use it a little bit more because it appears like a lot of us, and I've been talking with other scientists about this, a lot of us carry a bunch of pathogens around with us all the time. Depending on where your immune system is and everything else, you can be fine. But that doesn't actually mean that you want to harbor these things for the rest of your life because they do see some correlation later in life to certain neurological diseases and stuff to some of these pathogens. And so, you know, I think it's as a preemptive and because I'm a bit anal, I am quite interested in that to screen for certain things that I might decide to try and remove for the long-term benefits of, of removing those things. So I'm, I'm actually going to run a blood sample through her as well, but she's got some interesting stories. Like she had some patient uh, come in a sample and they couldn't figure out what it, the problem was. And it was, um, it was a species of uh, leprosy. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And apparently this isn't, this specific one isn't supposed to be around anymore. So they're picking up stuff that is kind of presumed dead uh, or gone in the past. So it'll be, I think her lab will be interesting. I'm not sure how fast she's accumulating data, but if anyone's got something, you know, some really um, strange medical condition out there, it might be an option to just try and get some ideas on the table. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, especially for people who have some kind of misdiagnosed chronic condition where your doctor and maybe doctors and you consult consulted lots of people and they don't know what's going on and they're just, you can't figure it out. I do think that any of these tests is going to be valuable, you know, an, an additional data point. Now, whether it's going to produce something actionable for you or not, I don't know. But um, I'm really glad that we have the technology available. Right. For it's, us it's, to it, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. It's, it's starting to give us ways to try and decipher these mysteries, you know, or at, exactly. least, at least get us closer to the results more quickly. And often it's, it's kind of leads. It's, you know, obviously it's not, that's why they're not being used by uh, physicians that much is because they can't give you a diagnosis. But they can give you leads and patterns and, and, you know, and eventually someone can figure something out from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like my example of bananas, I think that a lot of times just doing a different, a different test like this will maybe point out something that you had not been focused on. You had sort of taken it for granted that this was just the way things are. This is the way that I, I live. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes they'll kind of shake you up a little bit and say, well, wait a minute. Have you tried rethinking this, this previous assumption? <laughs> and I think that's valuable, too. So what do you think on the 16S versus shotgun i mean they're not that far apart now 
in terms of yeah, price. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, well, um, I it mean, depends on your budget, right? Depends uh, on your budget. Yeah, and I know yeah. a lot of people who will say, you know, four hundred dollars or three hundred dollars is a lot of money mm. um, to spend on yeah. uh, something that's you know that's not quite that uh, well understood. And I understand that argument. I think that if you can, I think it's definitely worth it. I think you're getting you're getting some uh, you know some new insights that you wouldn't have had otherwise. We talked about the question that we have about the transparency of the results of Biome and where they got there. I think transparency is key because it's also, I think it's a little bit about the ethos of the company. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like the ones that are already transparent, you know, you could see, as, as we're saying, like these samples, they have them, they're going to evolve over time, you know, so it's going to become more valuable um, provided that it's transparent. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to know why it is that you gave that recommendation. And then I want to know and trust that if someday you discover a new science that makes you, you know, retract your recommendation, that I'm going to hear about it, and yeah. that you're going to be honest and upfront about it. Yeah, right. because here's the thing about science: is that real scientists they want to be proven wrong. They're constantly right, looking exactly. for reasons why they're the why their thing is broken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, yeah, and I always get a little suspicious when I'm talking to one of these companies where they they act like, um, "What do you mean? Are you questioning my science? Are you questioning my results?" Like, you know, what? or they yeah, don't give you full access to the data. If if you don't yeah. give me my raw data, I'm I'm get nervous. That's a red flag right there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, Richard just brought that up. We got a little table here. We're going to throw up. Um, he was like, "Oh yeah, raw data," and I was like, "Damn, I forgot that one." It, where you can, you know, the raw data is going to be really helpful, and it just proves that they're transparent as well. I think that's a you know really important thing when you're going for one of these services to ask about. Yep. And, you know, I think most of them are going to provide that. We spoke about like some of them haven't done it quite yet, but uh, they, they say they're going to do it soon. Um, yeah. And I look at it as a reputable lab will be happy to give you the data because their real um, value that they add is in the interpretation side. And they have access to additional, you know, maybe proprietary data or insights that you don't have, mm. which is fine. That's where they're going to be differentiating themselves. But the raw data itself, it's just data. It just comes right out saying it's, it's your data. It's about your health. You should be able to look at it. That's my attitude. Plus, in the case of something like Ubiome, and one of, the, you know, one of the reasons I'm very, very excited about Ubiome's raw data is that we're able to go and take that data and do things with it that Ubiome just doesn't have the time or the, um, you know, maybe the, the, the just the bandwidth to go and pursue. And so a lot of these charts that I was able to produce, I mean, I, I did that because I was I had access to the raw data. I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually had... Um... Anyway, there's was a long story, but I'll put the pro- I had a little project to identify a, a species which I thought would be uh, useful with the 16S. Basically, like we'd be talking like a strategic screen for pathogens uh, using some tools. So I actually uh, got that sent to you biome, and they and um, you know they were like, "This is really interesting," but we have a lot of other projects that yeah. are taking <laughs> up all our time right now. <laughs> so you know, there's there's a lot of stuff this uh, these these technologies could be used for in the future. And I think that's one of them, you know, um, a very cheap method for some doctor to get a strategic screen and then for pathogens, for a list of pathogens. And then, you know, if something comes up, you then do the PCR, which is more expensive, but you've done it really cheaply, you know. So I think that's going to be hopefully a really interesting application in the future. What other things do you think might be cool in the future or what applications do you think these are going to turn out to be pretty useful for? And or what do you think you would use it for today? if you're going to use it for something? Like I said, I think that most people talk about gut microbiome, but there's a lot of interesting things you can learn in the other microbiomes as well. And I think we're going to see a lot um, in the future. I think we're going to see more emphasis on, say, the mouth and the skin. And, you know, there's just a lot of these very intriguing associations. For example, um, one of the things about Alzheimer's disease 
one of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is a lack of smell. And there is some evidence that the nasal microbiomes of people with Alzheimer's are different than those who you, who who are not. And could it be that there's a microbe that just sits in the nose for years and years, decades and decades, and finally migrates into the brain, and that's what you know triggers the disease? And we're going to find all kinds of associations like that. You know. Yeah, I think it's often going to be multifactorial as well, and yep. that's why data is going to be so from all of these places is going to be so invaluable because we're going to be like, oh, look, when you get these 20 factors <laughs> together. Yeah. I mean, this is why we haven't been yeah. able to figure this stuff out yet because we focus on one factor and we just can't see the big picture, uh, which is a, yeah. it's way more complicated. And talking about AI is becoming kind of a buzzword, but I do think that the ability to be able to go and look at all these different tests all holistically and be able to look at all this different data and then see um, patterns. And that is one thing that AI is good for. Yeah. And we may be surprising ourselves in the kinds of insights that are possible. I know, right? It's it's going to be really interesting what comes out. And uh, some people are going to get really annoyed by some of the stuff bring AI brings <laughs> out. It's going to trash some trash some stuff we've been doing it for probably a long will. time. Yeah, yeah. Probably will. <laughs> one cool thing that's actually going on is, um, and Richard alluded to this with another company before, but day two, what's interesting about these companies, they're evolving pretty quickly as well. So day two, when I did it, was just a test. But now... When you buy it, you actually get a nutritionist consultation. So they're embedding. Yeah, that's right. That yeah. Did you get that when you signed up for it? Yeah, oh. I just, I just never, I never talked to the person. I probably uh, should at some point. <laughs> I you wasn't sure. Man, yeah, you should say. follow up. I'd love to know. Yeah. What the, they the, the frustration I always have is because I want to know a lot of more technical details about stuff and they usually don't know the answer. Well, so you find that. out, you never know that you might hit the jackpot and they might be like, yeah. In the case of both day two and biome, I was very impressed that you know they reached out to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I got a call out of the blue from somebody from day two and they just said, you know, we wanted to talk to you about your test and what you thought about it. Wow. It was like, um, how did you get my phone number? <laughs> and they said, well, you put it down when you register for the products, and that's what we're calling it for because we wanted to know what you really think. And it was a, I, you know, I chatted for you know at length with somebody and told her exactly what I thought about the product. And so I'm I'm encouraged that yeah. they are going out of their way to do this. Similarly with Biome, I know um, they are calling people up and saying, "Is this you? Are you saying you Biome or is it another company? No, Biome. The company oh, Biome. Biome. Okay, gotcha. They're, they've been very proactive about." Mm making sure that people send their samples in and finding out like why it is that you're not sending the samples. And so, so I'm encouraged that the whole industry is undergoing this kind of a push to be more customer centric and, and maybe really trying to solve people's problems as opposed to just a fast way to make money. Yeah, exactly. Solving results, giving people results is where it's at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do we think of the things that have to be improved? I mean, we kind of touched on this already, but if we, to get to something that's going to be far more valuable, like all of these services so that, we, you know, we'd be saying like everyone should be getting these done and really using them. What has to happen with the technology? What has to happen? And do we have any kind of reasonable well, timelines? Well, all right. So there are, there's kind of a movement. A, a lot of these uh, companies are trying to add better access to the literature. So, for example, uh, Thrive now, they're proud of the fact that they did some kind of machine learning thing where they went through all the literature and looked at all the references to different microbes. And they're going to tell you this and that about it. And so there's, you know, there's some activity around that. I think that's helpful. I think it's nice to be able to have some way other than just Googling the name of a microbe, you know, to find out what it is. If we could get more into some more vetting of the literature, you know, that'd be good. If you spend any time with this at all, you'll notice that there are thousands of new articles coming out, new journal articles, new peer-reviewed journal articles coming out every day. You can't keep up with them all. And a lot of them are are self-contradictory. I mean, it's just very hard to tell. So if uh, maybe there was a little bit more emphasis on curating the results a little bit better, you know, that might be Standardization. 
Um, somehow yeah, the way the labs the really report the results, the way that they um, publish the results, that kind of standardization, I think would be great. So I was talking with a bioinformatist who's working in the nutrition area, and he's got one of these apps similar to, you know, that tracks uh, food, food intake and all of that. And he was telling me that the databases that all of the companies with these apps, all of them are using are really low quality. So that it's a very similar instance, and I'm sure it's similar in most of these areas where the quality of data is actually very poor. And we're just talking very basics yeah. here, like the macro content of a food, which has been put in their database. Yeah. And you take the photo or you enter it, you pick it in their library and you think you're getting that macro content, but you're not because the data yeah. is quite, quite bad. And, you know, so they've personally just been building a very low volume database. So it has less in it, but it's high quality. And they're thinking about yeah. just throwing it out there as open source to try and like bring the industry up a bit to try and get people using that and building on it and, and improving on it. But I think what's happened is a lot of people are being conscious that their databases aren't broad enough or don't have enough volume in it. So it can be very frustrating yeah. for customers and all of this stuff. And so they've chosen other approaches, like just get customers to add the information in or whatever. And these are low quality yeah. approaches. And then you end up with a lot of garbage, unfortunately. So, you know, this is a very yeah, important so. topic for quantification in general and getting actionable information out of it at the end of the day. Yeah, and everybody kind of wishes there was a, a like a Wikipedia of knowledge about you know the microbes and about the you know food benefits and all that kind of stuff where anybody can go and add the results. And I was like, I mean, I guess that's Wikipedia, <laughs> right? It is <laughs> Wikipedia. Yeah. yeah, there is yeah. value in crowdsourcing, but it's those processes and things you have to put in so that you get a volume, but then it's filtered and filtered and filtered, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. so that you maximize the benefits of building a volume through crowd but at the same time there's a mechanism yeah. to ensure the quality eventually ends up there yeah and it works for things like my fitness pal mm. has any kind of food you can possibly imagine in any culture any language anything they've got it in there because they've got this crowdsource thing figured out to a science and um, in fact you know they were telling me that when nabisco put out some new packaged good they had the calorie information in their database before Nabisco. <laughs> it's <just laughs> like, ridiculous. It's like somebody just immediately does. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's it's of unclear quality. And in a lot of cases, particularly with uh, foods and with the microbiome, like we were talking about apples, you know, the there's a lot of difference between what was tested in the lab somewhere and what you're actually putting on your plate. Yeah. And I can tell you, because I've been digging into food science and stuff for uh, one of my companies. And when you see an ingredient on a label, there are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 different versions of that that yep. would fit into that name. Yep. And mm -hmm. they have different, quite different properties in some instances. We're picking through different ones and we'll be like, you know, we'll go through 10 of them until we get to one that does what it, we want to. So there can be a lot of variation on that. So when you've got these ingredients and they're using these ingredients as well to form the macros and everything, and, you know, it's just not the same. Yeah, and I think, um, I think with labeling, in some ways, it may be a disservice that governments around the world are, you know, force companies to put the labels on because it gives this false sense of security on your part that you think, oh, it's got sugar in it. Well, what kind of sugar? Right, you know, it's exactly. It's like, yeah. And the reality is just way more complicated than they can summarize in a label. And I almost wish that there was instead uh, like a uh, like competition among lots of private companies that will, you know, that will compete on the best label yeah. that they supply to a particular food. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah, because right now they everyone hides behind it, basically. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in the U.S., it's particularly bad because we don't give um, it's not per 100 grams. It's uh, we just um, per serving. Just per serving. Yeah, whatever. That means. I was actually looking at it the other day and I was like, this makes it really hard to do the calculations in my head. Yeah. You, you always have to have it working on the 100. Otherwise, you can't compare. 
And you know, and smarter companies know how to manipulate that. So, you know, for example, there's the what is that the uh, the little uh, sugar packets that you get for coffee? I guess they they've arranged it so that they make the size exactly at the cutoff, where now they can right. say it's zero calories because yeah, yeah it's, it's like four point nine calories, but it's under five, so they can report it at zero calorie. Yeah, yeah. It, there are so many tricks in the food industry. Uh, they have mastered the game. They've had they've had a while to do it. So. And I think regulators, then they're going to be able to solve that. It really has to be transparency coming through because companies want to do it to, yeah. to please their customers because regulators, it's just, it's just not their job. Like it's not something that you can't fit a structure that forces people to do it. Yeah. And that's where, you know, for the microbiome stuff, I mean, as we get more and more companies involved in it, more and more labs that are doing this sort of thing, I do hope that there emerges some sort of independent verification. Yeah labs or something. And I think um, you had, was it Labdoor? I think that you had on your podcast a while ago yep. is an example of that company that I love that they, they go out and they specifically go and evaluate these things. And I mean, it's independent and they're just looking to see kind of whether on behalf of consumers, whether you can trust what you got or not. You know, be neat if there was a similar kind of thing with the microbiome world, wouldn't it? But this is happening in, you know, the software world has made itself is very, being very good at this. When I think of telecoms and, and software and these IT industries, compared to the, the health industry where it is, there's a lot of silos in health and everyone's got their own lab and you don't know if they interrelate and they, they don't. I mean, even in the, the big labs that you know hospitals have been using for a long time and so on. And what we really need is a similar structure, what they've done in telecoms and software, where you have like, these big open standards organizations and everyone gets together and says, we know it's going to be more valuable for the industry. Yeah. We know we're going to make faster progress and the economics are going to be better. So we're going to make this and maybe it just needs a few people to stand up. So if you're listening out there and you've got a role in this, yeah, you know, go for it, yeah, go for it yeah. please, you know, because you could add so much value to this industry. People need to uh, start putting things together. And then I think the other analogy is a lot of integrator kind of companies in the software area and the Internet now where things like Zapier and IFFT and all these other apps are relying on all of the rest of them in the ecosystem and maybe like a conversion app or other ones would add so much value to all of the other things out there. So I think there's ways to better integrate these things over time and it's going to happen. Um, and there's, there's yeah, plenty right. of business ideas out there potentially as well. So That's right, yeah. You know, it'd be interesting to look maybe at the history of how even like say blood testing got standardized because I'm sure they had the same kind of problems at the beginning. Like, you know, how do you decide how to measure vitamin D or how do you decide how to measure all this stuff? And, and it looks like they've kind of figured that out. I wonder if some of those same well, lessons could be applied. To largely, however, I've had problems with blood tests in terms of uh, variants, in particular between different countries. So I was in Spain at one time trying to get labs and I actually uh, left the country because I gave up completely because none of the data wasn't correlating with stuff I'd seen in the US and the UK and stuff. You know, so I think there's still there is interlab. Maybe it's more complicated than I think. Yeah, yeah I think there's still. Yeah, a lot of these things, the more you dig into the details, the more you realize how messy it all is. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy world we live in. And this is something you're constantly working on. And you still work on this stuff, do you? Or have you kind of moved on a bit? I do. I mean, you know, my situation right now is I've got so much data that I'm spending a little more time trying to do the analysis and the data. It is kind of cool, though, because every time lots of people send me their samples hmm. and ask me what I think. And every time that somebody sends me a new sample, I get more information. And yeah. uh, Are you offering? <laughs> yeah. I mean, anybody who wants to, you can send me your Ubiome data and I'm happy to look at it and, and tell you what I think. Um, you know, like I'll find out little things like like the other day was a New York Times article about heart disease or something. I mean, I, read, I mean, I mean, it's every single day and they'll mention the particular microbe that was involved. And so I'll just go look it up and I'll see, oh, huh, which uh, and I go, you know, I, I log into my computer and I see, OK, how does that microbe look in me and what was I doing at the time? And, and you know, I'll find all kinds of interesting correlations. Um, I found things like 
on during travel. There are particular microbes that bloom in me, mm. and it just we need to understand why and what is that thing doing, and yeah. and uh, is it a good thing, a bad thing? I don't know. I was just also thinking that you've traveled a lot, right? You lived in China uh -huh. and um, yeah, I spent two years in Asia. Right, right. So we both did that. We both traveled a lot, and I think some that influenced our biome a little bit. You found some stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. One of the things, I mean, the, one of the things that I, I think is really cool is uh, there's a particular uh, microbe in that was identified a few years ago as letting Japanese people, their digestive systems can handle seaweed right. and metabolize seaweed better. And, you have and the study that did this was comparing uh, a lab in Japan versus a lab, I think it was in St. Louis. Hmm. And they concluded that North Americans don't have this and Japanese people do. And I thought that was pretty cool. But when I looked at my own results, I found out I have it yeah, too. That's cool. that. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that's one of the reasons that I got me excited about the microbiome because it, it does appear that there are ways you can change your microbiome. Like living in and another country for a while, you know. Like that's a big yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. In fact, actually, speaking of probiotics, so a lot of people have sent me A/B testing of their um, of their probiotics, and one guy sent me. Uh, he had three samples. One when he had been living in the UK, another when he had moved to California, and another and then started taking a probiotic, and then a month or so later, he did another sample. And guess what? You can't really tell the difference between the two samples taken on the probiotic, but you can tell the difference between the sample <laughs> when he was living. Wow. Yeah. And, so uh, if you really yeah. want to change your biome, move. Yeah. So I wonder what that, like I have lived in countless countries. I wonder, I think my microbiome might be confused, but potentially. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But you know what? The microbiome is pretty resilient too. Mm. You know, I, I like looking at, uh, so I compare my father who lives in the, in the Midwest in the United States and he, has kind of stayed in the same place, and that's where I grew up. But uh, it's interesting to look at our microbiomes. I'm essentially a superset of his. Right. So whatever you know, whatever microbiome that I inherited as a result of living in his household for the first you know yeah. however many years of my life and eating kind of we have similar tastes in food and similar kind of diets um, to this day. But yet I have a superset of my micro of his microbiome because you know. I've lived all over the place and he's not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, that's uh, that's kind of a neat thing to know that we do have some some influence over over how this whole thing turns out. I run into a lot of people who ask me questions about like what can I do to change something, mm. and that's a big one, um, geography. But there are a lot of things that people don't necessarily think about either. And a big one that I always tell people is about fasting. That's a fast and easy way to change your the output of your microbiome that a lot of people just don't do. It's surprising how often. You'll run into somebody who, if you ask them, when's the last time you went a full 24 hours without eating food? Have you seen samples before and after of fasting? I mean, I'm into a lot of fasting, so I'd be interested to... No, I haven't. And I would like to be able to see that. Mm. I would like to see you know somebody doing a serious uh, serious job of fasting. Yeah. I can tell you, you need to nurture it, like kind of nurture it back to life after a 10-day fast with fibers. Actually, with, with fibers and stuff, I tried to eat other things, but I was it, like, it just doesn't work. So you have to kind of feed it like I juiced fibers basically like vegetables and actually added some fibers in order to kind of get myself back to normal. Yeah. It's just, I mean, the problem, the reason why it's been hard for me to test this, I mean, I do fast occasionally, but the, it's hard to test it because when you don't eat anything, usually you don't produce anything either. And so, um, well, I, I could tell you a way after a fast to generate poop, just liquid poop very fast. <laughs> if, you know, if you, if you just take fats, uh, that's not a good idea after a fast of five days or so. Um, so that would generate a result quite quickly. But um, I don't know what you'd get. It might be a completely biased. Yeah, it would be it completely would be biased. biased. Things, yeah. But the other yeah, thing is like, so the solution I found was actually juicing. Like if you juice like fibers and plants and stuff, 
and have that as your first couple of drinks, you should after the fast yeah. be able to poop quite quickly. Yeah, it's just you'll you'll poop something differently than you know we don't because we don't know what's going on in your microbiome before you know before that happens. I mean, I do I I have tested my skin by microbiome you know extensively uh, like before and after going camping mm. say where I, I'll go for several days without a shower to see what you know what happens and you know there's a there's a difference it's noticeable. And I assume the same thing is happening in the gut microbiome. Yep. Yep. Okay. But when I run into people who have some kind of gut issue, that's one of the first things I suggest is just give it a sh- give it a shot because I have talked to people who will say that you yourself can comment on how you know, fasting does make a difference. Yeah, and that goes back to I was like to quote the Volta Longo's work where he's he's actually got a book out now. Um, but you know, I have my episode on the fast mimicking diet. Anyone who's got some yeah. weird chronic issue and that no one knows how to solve it, uh, the cycling of fasting just could be an interesting tool that's right it's worth trying yeah Mm -hmm. okay so let's learn a bit more where could someone learn more if they wanted to go investigate this stuff where would you tell people to go and learn more about the microbiome if they found this whole discussion really fascinating and they want to learn more about the labs and everything yeah um what i would start with is uh and you can put up a link to it um i've written a post on medium where um, I've, I've listed my favorite 10 books about the microbiome. And that's what I would look at. Um, oh, great. The, the number one book, I think, is Rob Knight's uh, book about, um, it's written a couple of years ago, but it's a great summary. It's relatively easy and quick to read. Um, it'll tell you a lot of the different things that you need to look at. But I do try to read just about every mainstream book that comes up about the microbiome. And I've selected the 10. There's that quite I think, a few coming out. A lot now. of them, yeah. And there are, a right. lot of them are really excellent. So I, I take a look at my top 10 list, and I've tried to keep that up to date of the ones that I think are particularly good. Excellent. Excellent. What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to and your work? Well, the best way is to look at my Twitter handle, just at sign Sprague. I try to post something you know, pretty regularly, and, I, I, uh, and people are welcome to um, contact me there. You could also look at my website, um, richardsprague.com. Uh, just my personal website where I kind of post things as they come along. Right. You got your blog yeah. over there, mm-hmm. right? Right. Now, so who besides yourself would you recommend to learn more about the microbiome? Like who would be your goes to, like your favorite people? The, in the room? favorite person I have is um, Elise Bick, Elizabeth Bick, um, who um, on Twitter is at sign microbiome digest. And she's uh-huh. one of the smartest microbiome scientists I know. And she's very prolific on Twitter. She reads all these publications and she will let you know the ones that, um, that matter. So that's the, that's the one I would recommend wow. for that. Excellent. Excellent. Is there anyone else? A lot of them are the ones that you've already featured on your program. Obviously, Rob Knight, Iran Segal from Day 2. You know, those are all good people that, um, you know, I trust their science. And, I, and I'm always eager to hear what next thing they're kind of come out with. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay, let's talk a bit about you. What is your personal approach to improving your body and use of tracking? And it's not, not just microbiome, but, you know, really anything, including microbiome. Yeah, I've been a quantified self-tracker for a long time. I track my daily amounts of sleep. I track um, a lot of the main foods that I eat. Uh, I don't do it as rigorously as I've done in the past. So, I've, you know, like a lot of us, I've, you know, there have been times in the past where I rigorously checked. You know, I used to have a Zio device that I slept with and... I could tell you for years exactly how much REM sleep I had, and I track you know I track my activity. Um, not so much now. I don't I don't carry a Fitbit or anything, but I um, up from time to time I'll look at just a because I've got so such good baselines in the past, um, and I'll if I'm going to make a major major change, I'll track myself again. Um, but the number one thing, I mean, I hate to keep on harping on this, but I track my microbiome. I think that's really fascinating, <laughs> and it's something I recommend mm. you know people. Um, uh, even if, uh, you know, if you're not going to track it every day, track it once, get a baseline, you know, see how it, you know, see it is. And, and I think you'll learn a lot. 
And so what are the things you've stuck with now? What, what, like, what are you going to do the next month or the next three months? Well, I am interested now in, I've been interested in fermented food. One of the things that I discovered was uh, from tracking my appointment is the power of kefir, because it's one of the few things that I've noticed makes a real noticeable difference in the microbiome. And I'm doing a couple of experiments on myself just to see. I've noticed a couple of microbes that I did not have when I was before I started drinking kefir and that I have now, one of which is associated with uh, recovery from Crohn's disease. So it seems like it's probably an important microbe. And I'd like to know, I'd like to find out more ones like that. So I'm constantly on the lookout for new kinds of. That's interesting. And I may be able to help you with that one because I went for a kefir about a year of kefir daily, and I was doing the ubiome tests during that. Oh, period. interesting. So there might be something. Oh, in interesting. There. Do you yeah. so? Uh, uh, so the data that uh, the your ubiome data would include the kefir it would drink? be in, it would be around it. I think it would be yeah. either side right. of so, it. No, I'll take a so, look because it'd be interesting to look to see if you've got the microbes that, that yeah, I found in That's why that would be interesting because the first test probably wouldn't have anything and then maybe the last test would. Yeah, I'm especially interested in um, traditional, both traditional foods and traditional medicines because I think that's an underexplored area for finding new interesting microbial solutions to things. You know, like Chinese medicine and um, Indian Ayurvedic medicine. They have a lot of things that to Western eyes look kind of weird, mm. but if you look at it from the point of view of a microbiome, it's suddenly you have a vocabulary now to talk about something in more scientific terms. And I'm yeah. really interested in that. Yeah. Somebody told me about this. Uh, there's a, some droplets that um, apparently Indian mothers give their babies when the babies have um, like uh, colic. And uh, I bet that's a microbial thing. It probably affects the microbiome. And, right. uh, you know, it's just like little things like that that happen all the time. Right. And before we used to say, like, there's no way they can do anything. But as we add these new layers of science on, we start seeing, actually, there's a potential mechanism there. Yeah. Yeah. And when people have tested some of this stuff, quote unquote, scientifically, when you look at the details of how they test it, a lot of times it'll be something where they there's some kind of Chinese medicine and somebody will say, well, let's bring some people into the lab here in California and let's give some of them this and some of them that. Well, it's different conditions than it is. And then it was administered in a, you know, by a barefoot doctor in rural China, where there are microbes all over the place that are affecting the results. It's you're not necessarily comparing apples to apples, and so I think there's probably a lot of things like that in traditional medicine or food mm-hmm. that have a bigger effect, um, positive effect than we know. And um, it's the kind of thing I wish I knew more about. Cool, very interesting. What I realized now actually is that what kind of insights have you got about your biology? from your quantification and have they led to any changes in behaviors or the, any actions that you've taken? So actually, you know, changes in your life you've made. Yeah. Um, I would say that I'm pretty healthy and so I've not had any real issues that I've been concerned about. And so that makes me a little bit of a, I'm kind of odd. A lot of people who are involved in the microbiome, they have some kind of story about their journey trying to recover for something. So I don't really have that. Mm. Um, but that also makes me, I think an interesting case because I'm able to look and see over time how my, you know, my health has shifted as I get older and how, you know, how different things. One of the things that I'm, I'm intrigued right now about is in particular sleep. I've always been a reasonably good sleeper, but I get less sleep than a lot of people that I average around six and a half hours for, I have for decades. Okay. Interested in getting better and deeper sleep. I have found a relationship with potato starch is one thing that we've talked about before about this, you know, some people use that as a way to um, increase the amount of bifidobacterium in their body. Mm-hmm. It's something that I, you know, I would try if I was having, if, if you know somebody who's having trouble sleeping, that's one thing to look at. Yeah. Okay. So this is a bit random, but I've been working on my sleep for quite a while. I got really got to do a full episode on, on this kind of stuff. 
And I've, like you, had actually worse. Like at times I get four hours sleep, four and a half hours sleep, and it was very difficult to stay asleep. I can get to sleep, but I can't basically stay asleep. Mm -hmm. So there's two things I've done that amongst all the others, which I think actually three things. The first is get one of these. So I'm showing Richard a sad light, 10,000 Lux sad light. And you put it on, and I got this from a Parkinson's study because they have problems with sleep as well. And when they, they showed this, uh, they basically put this on for two hours in the morning. So it's basically simulating strong sunlight, right? And you put it next to your desk or something and you get that. And I found that's helped. I think it potentially the, the, what's going on in the mechanism is it's resetting your sleep cycle because we're not getting enough light. Yeah. We're indoors all day. We're not getting enough light and stuff. Huh. So that seemed to make quite a bit of difference. And the other thing is, which... So you, you just turn this light on in the morning? As soon as I get up, I walk into up. the... I find yeah. it's actually to wake me up as well, better than coffee. Yeah. Like sometimes I've forgotten to have my coffee because it's already done the job, basically. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. So I really love... And you just I, run in the morning and the rest of the day you, you turn it off and, and just live your day. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love this thing. <laughs> so, huh. and you know, I've tracked the data and stuff, but I still, I'm still tracking. I got the Aura which isn't, yeah. isn't the best, but I think duration's not so bad. So I've been tracking that over a long time. I'm still kind of waiting to see the results on it. The other thing is, and this is most people aren't going to like this, is going to bed really early. And so I started to go to bed. I now, like, first of all, I started, I'm going to get to bed by 11 p.m., right? Because I noticed it seemed that my, in my aura data and everything, I was, like, sleeping longer duration if I got to bed earlier. So that worked a bit, pulled it back to 10 worked a bit better, pulled it back to nine. I'm having seven hours, seven and a half hours consistently every night, which I've never done in my whole life. And mm. I don't know why it is, but I, I can give you like references of celebrities and, and yeah. people who do this. Like there's a lot of people out there that go to bed at nine and get up at four. I get a lot more work done as well now. Yeah, and I, I feel, I feel, <laughs> I feel much better, but it is a bit of a lifestyle. Like uh, most people don't want to fit in with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean that's it's interesting you say that. Yeah, so are you are you taking any supplements or do anything special to improve sleep or just? I've taken lots of supplements. The only one I still take is glycine, L-glycine. There's some studies showing that that helps uh, to reduce night wakings, which is you know, or and so that that I do stick with. And in a, in another one of my companies, we actually recommend it to anyone and have them doing it when they have sleep issues and sleep interruptions and that, and it seems to be working consistently across those people so yeah interesting yeah interesting yeah i, I really miss my zeo because uh before they went out of business yeah. I and mean, that was far everyone the misses best them. way to sleep yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well i'm hoping yeah. the, the next door is going to be uh more accurate as well so that's coming yeah. out uh, due for delivery in april i think yeah it's hard to see how anything's going to beat the you know looking at the brain waves right which is what Z did. But. Okay, right. This is quite a, an important thing. If you were to recommend one experiment, someone should try to improve their body, health performance, longevity, anything like that with the biggest payoff, what would that be and how should they track it to so that they could understand that payoff and then it's actually happening for them? Yeah, again, I would look at the microbiome and probably the number one thing that I see that people could improve on the microbiome is their bifidobacterium levels. And that's the thing that um, I know you know I talk about. It's associated with sleep and with serotonin levels and with, you know, so just an overall like, um, you know, mental stability, all those, all those sorts of things. And what I found in my looking at lots and lots of samples is that people who don't have any bifidobacterium, they almost always have some kind of problem. <laughs> And uh, so the number one thing that I would say uh, for people who are interested in this is to test yourself, see what your bifidobacterium levels are, 
and then look at different ways to be able to increase it and improve it. Have you got any ideas on what might work? Unfortunately, mm. I don't have really good ideas that work for everyone, but mm. I would start with things like you can try potato starch, which which is um, if you eat it raw, it is known that it's a particular type of resistant starch that feeds bifidobacterium and it'll make it through your digestive system. You can try that. Uh, for some people, beans work, as I said with my example of going to New Orleans. And then I would test myself uh, you know, a couple of weeks and see if I got any bifidobacterium in me. And I think that's like the number one thing that I would recommend for people to look at is the bifidobacterium levels and and see how you can, uh, you know, what works for uh, changing that in you. Yeah, that, so that's a good one. I I had non-existent bifidobacteria when I started doing biome, but now it pops up in all my tests. So unfortunately, yeah. I can't say what I did because I did many different things mm -hmm. over that period. But, um, you know, it's definitely possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so, that's good news. Yeah, yeah so that's good news. Well, Richard, thank, this has been a great discussion. We've gone all over the topic and it's uh, re really great to catch up with you and talk about all this stuff. So thank you for your time. No, thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Damien. You have so many things that you know about and we're, we're kind of kindred spirits on this whole quantified journey. So thanks a lot. It was great talking to you. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website theQuantifiedBody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.